Alright, hello and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, I'm Dale, uh, representing the Christian or Seeker side, and uh, this is going to be one of Dale's uh, supplemental series. We have a special treat for you guys, uh, continuing on with our Shroud Wars. Uh, me, me and Alan did a couple debates on, on the topic of the Shroud there, and uh, we're, we're picking up. We took a bit of a hiatus, um, but this time you don't have to listen to me. and <laughs> You can actually have hear uh, a couple of Shroud experts debate the topic. Um, so, yeah, in the first place we have uh, Bob Rucker. Uh, welcome to the show, Bob. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being here. And out of curiosity for, for the audience, both me and Bob, our birthdays were yesterday. Um, so happy belated birthday to you there, Bob. Uh, yes, but I, you remember I'm twice as old as you are. That is correct, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and joining me as the Shroud Skeptic, um, we have another expert, uh, Hugh Ross. Welcome to the show, Hugh. Uh, yeah, Hugh Ferry. Hugh Ferry, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, welcome to the show. Yep, thanks very much. Awesome, so well, welcome to the show there, Hugh. Uh, so yeah, I think it's going to be a great debate. So we've split it up into two topics. Um, so first of all, Bob Rucker is going to initiate, and um, we're going to be discussing the carbon-14 dating result and how he explains this this carbon 14 that makes it uh consistent with a first century date as opposed to being of medieval origin and hugh's going to be coming back and counteracting that and we're going to have a bit of uh back and forth on the significance of the carbon 14. um and then after that we're going to get into the image formation mechanism and, and hugh's going to be leading us off on this front um as to what he thinks the best naturalistic image forming mechanism is um, and yeah, Bob's going to be coming back on that. So yeah, that's the, the plan. Um, but before we get into that, I think we should, uh, become introduced to our guests. Um, so Hugh Ferry, not Hugh Ross. Um, uh, why, why don't you give us, uh, start us off by giving us sort of an introduction as to who you are and, and your background and how you got involved with the Shroud. Okay, right. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, 63, uh, about two weeks ago. So my birthday's run around the same time. Happy belated. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, since uh, since about twenty, I've been a teacher in a, as a science teacher uh, in a Catholic school here in Herefordshire, England. Um, mm -hmm. I just recently retired, and now I do independent tutoring. And because I was involved in teaching science in a Catholic school, the shroud obviously came up, and I was sporadically interested in it for quite a long time. Um, I read all uh, Ian Wilson's books and uh, one or two others that had come out. Uh, uh, the Paul Vignon book in the English translation and the Doctor of Calvary and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I was as convinced as anybody that the Shroud was authentic. And then about 10 years ago or so, I started debating this uh, in more detail and as I studied the primary sources upon which all these books were based, I became more and more skeptical. And in the end, I decided that by and large, I had to come out and say that I decided that the Shroud wasn't authentic, that it was in fact medieval. And then since I've been studying that and continuing to correspond with everybody I possibly can, uh, who's still alive, so many of the original researchers now have passed, unfortunately, um, I, I've, I've become, I suppose, the, uh, the, the poster boy for inauthenticity. I, I hope I've taken over from Joe Nicol, 
uh, as the arch demon of, of the medieval origin of the Shroud. Is that all about right? Sounds good. Yes, I, I can't wait to, to see the, the demon get into a debate here. So, um, perfect. Um, so yeah, that's that's really good. Um, I, I know personally I've interacted with Hugh in the comments in some of our previous Shroud episodes. So I, I do know that he has a lot to offer. He, he has a considerable knowledge base when it comes to the Shroud. So definitely looking forward to having you on here. Um, what about you, Bob? Um, why don't what, Bob Rucker is on the pro Shroud side. So why don't you give us an introduction as to who you are and how you got involved in the Shroud? Uh, yes, I'd like to go in, first of all, just some of my technical background. Uh, graduated uh, from University of Michigan, uh, earning bachelor and master's degree in nuclear engineering in a little less than four years. Uh, it can be done. Uh, and then started working at General Atomics in San Diego in uh, nuclear analysis uh, of nuclear reactors. Uh, and. Uh, Ended up uh, there about uh, 25 years uh, in San Diego at General Atomics. Uh, I did take about nine months off uh, in uh, 74-75 and uh, uh, spent one year at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago uh, to get my biblical uh, background. Uh, then went back to General Atomics, uh, finally left there and went out uh, consulting for about, uh, I don't know, 15 years or so. And during that time, I was uh, the main uh, nuclear analysis computer code or software that I was running was a piece of software called MCNP, which is an acronym for Monte Carlo Neutron or N Particle. And, and it's that computer code then that I used to model a human body in a cloth in a limestone tomb as it would have been designed in first century Jerusalem. Uh, in order to solve the carbon-14 dating problem. Well, uh, so I, I spent about 40 years uh, in the uh, nuclear uh, industry. Uh, you know, sometimes you're between jobs and whatnot, so some, some of that 40 years I wasn't working. So I, I usually list 37 or 38 years of actually working in, in the nuclear industry. But during that time, I produced uh, 42 referenceable papers uh, none of them in peer-reviewed journals, all of them uh, for the Department of Energy or a Nuclear Regulatory Commission, all internally reviewed. Uh, and so that's kind of the process that I've continued uh, with, with my papers. I have a group here that I'm working with, uh, Richland, Washington, state of Washington, northwestern part of the United States. Uh, is where I'm located, and uh, Richland, Washington is one of the premier research centers of the country. We specialize in nuclear research here. Uh, this is where the, they have discovered gravity waves predicted by uh, Albert Einstein uh, so many decades ago. So it, it's a high-tech uh, center for research. Um, but uh, before, besides the 42 referenceable papers, I've produced hundreds of uh, of memos, you know, it goes on and on. You finally get tired of even telling people about it. But uh, I, I first saw a picture of the shroud when I was a, uh, in the Parade magazine, about two inches high, um, in in when I was maybe 13 or 14 years old, and and just was very negative about it. This can't possibly be. Everyone would know about it if it were true. Uh, but then decided I should be a little bit more open than that. And uh, gradually, through uh, reading uh, the various books, uh, whenever I would find them on the topic, I, I became convinced that it was probably, uh, probably authentic, as, as far as I could tell. Uh, and then, uh, in 
1978, the STIRP analysis was done, and I think that evidence was uh, very, very uh, positive as well toward the authenticity of the shrub. Uh, then in 1988, the carbon-14 dating was done, uh, and uh, it was maybe a year or two after the statistical analysis came out in 1989, maybe a year or two later, that I finally uh, sat down and read uh, Damon's uh, you know, I, I call it Damon. There's actually 21 different authors on it here. I have it right in front of me. Carbon Dating of the Shroud of Turin, published in Nature. But I remember sitting in the library reading that over. Uh, and it, after I finished it, uh, initially I experienced about a, you know, a two-minute just a depression. I mean, how can this be? When, when? And I started going back over all the positive evidences for it. And at that point in my life, I had about 19 years experience in, in calculating neutron distributions in nuclear reactors. So I had a pretty good idea uh, of the, uh, you know, nuclear interactions uh, that, that uh, if I applied uh, nuclear analysis to this problem w would show. But unfortunately, I was very busy. I didn't have time. I didn't have a computer fast enough at that point, And I didn't have a, the appropriate computer code. And all that didn't come together until 2014. So at that point then, I um, modeled a, a human body and a cloth in a limestone tomb uh, and did probably four or 500 long computer calculations, each one taking uh, six to 13 hours on my quad-core computer uh, in order to uh, you know, bracket all of the unknowns, uh, unknown energy directions, etc. Uh, and so, you know, I bracketed the unknowns in order to, to do this do this work, uh, and it was uh, quite extensive. I then wrote it up and then made a presentation on it at, at the Shroud Conference in St. Louis in 2014, um, and then continued uh, working on the Shroud in, in my papers. Uh, my, my website is shroudresearch.net um, on the... Um, if you're at the computer, please go there, uh, shroudresearch.net, uh, and on the research page, I have 22 papers uh, on the Shroud that are on that website uh, at this point. Um, so I've continued uh, my work for the last five and a half years uh, full-time uh, on the Shroud of Turin, trying to, with the objective of trying to solve the uh, mysteries uh, of the shroud. A couple of years ago at Christmas, I, I bought uh, uh, one of these glossy magazines, 100 Greatest Mysteries. It had one page on the Shroud of Turin, but the Shroud of Turin was on the, the cover of U.S. News uh, in 2002. It was on the cover of Time magazine in 1998, and there was a four-page fold-out spread in June 1980 of National Geographic. So I, I realize that people today are not all that familiar with it, especially young people, but the older people are very familiar with it in general uh, and uh, well-known. But uh, the objective here for me is to solve the mysteries of the Shroud of Turin. And maybe that's enough said at this point. Excellent. Perfect. All right. So I think at this point, uh, we'll get straight into the main focus of the, the debate with our first topic. And this is uh, Bob Rucker's initiating argument and it's getting into his research on the you know the number one evidence that that is alleged to show the shroud is in fact medieval the the 1980 carbon 14 
uh, dating results. So what we'll do at this point, um, since Bob's initiating, we'll give Bob 10 minutes or less to make his intro statement. Um, then we'll do the same with Hugh, give him uh, 10 minutes or less for his counter. Uh, and then we'll open up, open it up to a, an informal dialogue and discussion and, and try to, you know, see if we can get to, get to the truth of the matter on this. So, so yeah, uh, Bob, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to give your, your intro for the Carbon-14 dating aspect there. Uh, yes, thank you. Well, uh, let me apologize, first of all, that I don't have three hours to do this. Uh, so, so that we can't go into all the detail to have you fully understand it. Unfortunately, most people are not familiar with nuclear analysis techniques or, or statistical analysis techniques. And so it becomes very difficult for uh, you know, the scientist, the, the mathematical the analyst, to explain to the layman what they're talking about. Uh, and so I, I've taken a, a lot of documents, papers that I've written in order to do that. Now, on my website, shroudresearch.net, my main papers on the carbon dating problem for the Shroud of Turin are my papers 11, 12, and 13. Uh, and it's the same title, the carbon dating problem for the Shroud of Turin, but broken into three different parts. Uh, paper one is part one, which is background. Part two uh, is statistical analysis. And part three is the neutron absorption hypothesis. So we go through in a sequential fashion here. So part one was just to try and help the layman understand the, the different terminology and the different concepts that I would then talk about in, in the next two documents. So then uh, the part two of paper 12 was on the statistical analysis of the, uh, the actual data that was published uh, in the 1989 statistical analysis um, called, called Damon um, uh, that was published in the Nature Journal. Uh, and then uh, as a result of that nuclear uh, statistical analysis, uh, I, I realized that uh, there, were, there was good reason to search for something that increased the carbon-14 content on the Shroud of Turin because it's uh, it's highly likely uh, that there was such a thing going on as indicated by the data uh, that was published in Nature. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Tom Phillips, uh, in one of the letters to the editor in that same volume uh, of, of Nature, uh, indicated uh, his, his uh, observation uh, and that, that was uh, February 16th of 1989 in Nature. In a letter to the editor, uh, Tom Phillips, who at that time was working with the Harvard Laboratory, his PhD uh, working in cosmology at the present time. Uh, but he observed that if there were uh, uh, neutrons uh, involved in any unique event uh, in the tomb, uh, that they would have been absorbed in a variety of different things, uh, some of which would then cause a new carbon-14 to be produced on the shroud and therefore uh, a potential source for shifting the carbon date from the true date to an apparent date, uh, which might be entirely hidden to the layman that that, that was going on. So uh, as I was sitting uh, in the library reading uh, the uh, February 1989 uh, Nature Journal for the first time, 
after about two minutes of depression, it, it occurred to me that if, uh, if the image on the shrug, which is a full body image, uh, uh, if there, there was, if that image was due to a radiation event in the tomb from the body that, that came from the body, uh, there could also have been neutrons emitted. Now, uh, according to the biblical record, the his, his, or I could say historical record, their observations uh, that they reported uh, was that um, the entire body had disappeared. So that there, those two evidences of the entire body images on the cloth and, and, and the, the historical report that the entire body disappeared. That led me then to uh, assume, as, as a first assumption in my calculations, that the neutrons were emitted throughout the body. And, and that seemed re a reasonable starting point. And if that turned out to be consistent with, with the uh, measured results on carbon-14, so, so much the better. Uh, and so that, that's where I started. Uh, but then it occurred to me, as I sat in the library, uh, it, it occurred to me that uh, if there were neutrons emitted from the body, that they would be, that in the tomb they would basically form uh, a, a cosine distribution. A cosine distribution is peaked at the center, falls off on either side. Now, I also realized it would be shifted somewhat toward the center of the body mass, but still falling off on either side. The important point there is that the um, uh, neutron distribution that would occur in the tomb based on my 19 years of experience of calculating neutron distributions in nuclear reactors, that it would be, it would be uh, very highly sloped at the area where they took the samples from in 1988 to do the carbon dating. So in other words, they're, they're, uh, I thought uh, if this hypothesis that I was coming up with uh, was true, then what we would see would, would be uh, a different ages in the three different samples, even though the samples were only about one to one and a half centimeters uh, in dimension, you know, half an inch, and so that they were uh, right next to each other on the cloth, though just slightly different in location. But that, because of the highly sloped neutron distribution that I was just hypothesizing in my mind at that point, that it should date differently. And so, the first thing that I did, as I sat in the library, was that I looked at, at the dates that were obtained for the three different laboratories, uh, uh, Zurich, Oxford, and Tucson in Arizona. And sure enough, those three locations fell along the same curve that in my mind I was predicting the calculation would prove to be. Uh, and, but unfortunately, I didn't have the time, the computer, or the computer code to do the calculations in 1990 or 91, whenever I was reading that. So that had to wait until 2014. Um, so that's just a little bit of background about how I came upon uh, th this idea. Now, let me cut to the chase here on, on, um, on my paper 5 on shroudresearch.net. Uh, let me back up. Uh, my, my reading of 70, 60 or 70 years of research uh, 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 from uh, 
1898, when Segunda Pia took the first photograph, up through uh, you know five, six, seven decades, where uh, very highly qualified individuals, basically studying the blood, uh, became convinced that, that this was uh, real blood from a real crucified man. So there was a crucified man in the cloth uh, that resulted in, in, in that blood uh, on the shroud. And there's several different reasons for that. Uh, and you know we we can go into that, but I, I won't at this point. Uh, and so based on that, I, I said, okay, so let, let's assume then that there was a real human being uh, wrapped in the cloth, uh, and, and that uh, therefore that based on their decades of research, uh, they concluded that it was a real body that in some unknown way made the image on the cloth. So that'll be my starting point. Uh, and, and so, therefore, I asked the next question. So, if we have, had a body in the cloth, uh, what would have to take place uh, for, in some way, that body to create an image on the cloth? Well, it, it occurred to me that the key item that I don't know that any other shroud researchers are talking about is the necessity, absolute necessity, of getting information uh, that defines the appearance of a naked crucified man, getting that information to the cloth and deposited there. Uh, now that's what paper five on shroudresearch.net talks about, information content on the Shroud of Turin. That paper goes through six different ways in which information can be transported from one location to another. I, I consider uh, five of them, and. I'm able to rule out five of them. The only option for transporting the information content that defines uh, a naked crucified man from the body to the cloth is radiation because it travels in, in straight lines. Uh, my next paper, paper six on shroudresearch.net, is role of radiation and image formation, where I go into, I think, 16 different reasons that give evidence for uh, the, the image being formed by radiation that was emitted uh, in the body, which was transported uh, to the cloth and deposited that information there. Uh, that's 10 minutes, and so let me stop here. I'm, I'm timing my talks Perfect. on a stopwatch. Perfect. Yeah, okay, very good. You're doing my job for me. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so at this point, uh, let's let's turn it over to Hugh for the counter case. He, he has 10 minutes or, or less or thereabouts. Um, yeah, Hugh, Hugh, what do you have to say about the, the carbon-14 and, and uh, Bob's, Bob's ideas on that front? Yeah, okay, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, well, I, I suppose I consider that the whole thing about having to disprove the medieval radiocarbon date is because you have to have some reason to think that it's it's not accurate in the first place. There's there's no need to try and disprove it um, unless you think for some other reason that it, it uh, that it may be wrong. And uh, Bob put forward a, a sort of rough resume of his own researches in which he's come to the conclusion that the, um, the, the, the marks on the shroud are so accurate um, in regarding a dead crucified body um, that they must have been put there from a dead crucified body. 
Well, of course, I've spent some years examining the marks on the shroud, and I don't think they are particularly accurate, and I don't think they did come from a dead, crucified body. I think they could just as easily have been put there using other means, which we'll come to in the second part of the uh, in the second part of the of the discussion. Um, one, of, I mean, I've got one or two comments, uh, but I mean, we'll get into in, in more detail a bit later on. Um, but one of the things, for example, is there appears to be blood on the shroud. And there's a certain amount of um, uh, research. It's, it's fairly conflicting, I may say, and there are some people who disagree. But I, I, on the whole, I agree that there is blood on the shroud. But, of course, that doesn't mean that it's first-century blood. Um, it, it could be anybody's blood. To me, it doesn't look as if it's emerged either from a living body or a dead body, and all the pathologists which have discussed it have been in considerable controversy with each other as to whether it came from a dead body because all the blood from the living body had been washed off or whether the blood had been left on and somehow it had dried but then it had somehow got re-moistened when the body was put in the shroud. None of the pathologists who've discussed this have agreed with, you, agreed with each other uh, for good reason in my opinion. I just don't think it's as realistic as they think. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, Bob was brought up uh, Tom Phillips who wrote uh, a letter in the Nature paper uh, in which the uh, 1988 um, radiocarbon dating was uh, first publicized. Um, and I have that uh, letter in front of me. And of course, immediately below it uh, is Hedges' uh, reply. And R.E.M. Hedges, Robert Hedges, I think, was it, um, was, was one of the Oxford uh, radiocarbon accelerator unit scientists who found the shroud uh, to be from the uh, Middle Ages. And rather disarmingly, uh, he says the processes considered, uh, suggested by Phillips were considered by the participating laboratories. So it, uh, before they got as far as dating the thing, they immediately thought, ah, oh, well, maybe it is due to neutron radiation from the body. And he comes up with four reasons why they didn't pursue that. Firstly, he thought that Phillips's uh, estimation, uh, estimation of the amount of neutrons uh, was far too high. I don't know whether that's true or not. Bob will no doubt run us through exactly how many neutrons we actually need and that sort of thing. Um, secondly, interestingly, he uh, this is Hedge, Hedges saying that they found that the uh, results of the radiocarbon dating were far too uniform and did not um, get uh, get slowly more and more different as you get further away from the body. Now, uh, I will happily contend, and Bob has certainly pointed out, that since that time, um, a couple of statisticians, well, a team of statisticians led by Riani and Atkinson, have suggested that, in fact, the carbon dates do indeed get slightly um uh, older as you get away from the body. But Hedges didn't know that at the time because they didn't know at that time whereabouts the different samples had been that were dated had come from. Um, his, uh, that was his second point. Uh, another point was uh, that uh, it was, a, and this is a good one, I think, it's an amazing coincidence that the neutron dose should be so exactly appropriate to give the most likely date on historical grounds. 
how extraordinary that just the right of neutrons were emitted by the resurrecting body to produce a radiocarbon date which exactly matches the earliest historical date when we know the shroud appeared. And then I'm afraid his last um, uh, reason, which is, in fact, it's number one in, in his list, uh, is that science cannot investigate miracles, uh, which is something I, I rather agree with. Um, as you'll see later on, I hope, we simply cannot pursue a sensible argument for science as we go into the miraculous nature of it because we just have to say well the miracle didn't do that or the miracle didn't do that and we have to fit the miracle to our scientific uh, explanation so that's i think what i've got to say at the moment is that is that about right excellent yeah yeah i think that's uh, i think that's a great uh, counter case thank you very much for for providing that um yeah what what we'll do now is I'll, i'm going to open it up to a uh, an informal discussion between you, you and Bob on on some of these points. Um, so yeah, I'll start with 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 uh, Bob if you want to respond to what Hughes presented or, or clarify anything you've said in, in terms of getting the discussion started. Uh, yes, uh, I should have been writing down Hughes' points as we go, but just uh, I wasn't. I'll try and do that in the future. But uh, let me just uh, say a few things. Uh, I have a group of, um, oh, maybe 10 people that are working with me here. That, that's our uh, Shroud research team uh, that we have in Richland, Washington. Uh, and we're composed of Protestants, Catholics, and agnostics. Uh, and so what we're committed to is to do good science. We never talk about miracles. We never talk about the supernatural. Uh, that, you know, I, I've learned, I have learned, maybe from hard experience, uh, not to be talking about uh, miracles or supernatural, because that, those are just red flags, and it's uh, to many people, especially scientists. Uh, and so, uh, what I talk about uh, is uh, events that are beyond or outside of our current understanding of the laws of physics. Now, um, there's a called a philosophy of naturalism, and scientists are very good at assuming that naturalism has to be applied. Uh, but in, in my paper, let's see, it's paper uh, 19 uh, on my website, uh, I, I go into, it's a status of research on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, on page two, there's philosophy of Shroud research, about a page and a half long, uh, as to the reasons why naturalism ought not to be applied to the Shroud of Turin. Uh, and, and the bottom line is that, uh, you know, I, I can wear two hats here. I can wear a hat where I put on my Christian believer's hat and see everything through, you know, the, the glasses of uh, Christian theology and Christian theism and, and biblical uh, statements and whatnot. Or I can take that hat off and I can put on my science hat. Uh, and so that's what I think in this discussion I need to be wearing is my science hat. And in wearing that, in wearing that science hat, uh, I, I can be objective, and I ought to be objective. No, uh, and be neutral uh, in deciding issues. Now, what I mean by neutral is that when I approach the investigations on the Shroud of Turin with my science hat on, uh, I say that maybe the shroud is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus, or maybe it's not. Uh, and if it is the 
authentic burial cloth of Jesus. Maybe the image of, uh, resulted from a unique event uh, that occurred to the body of Jesus uh, there in the tomb, or maybe it wasn't. And I say, uh, if it was a unique event, uh, maybe it was the resurrection, maybe it wasn't. So that's what I mean by a, a neutral mindset. Uh, and, and so that uh, I see uh, a Christian is much less likely to be biased on this investigation of the shrug uh, than an atheist. Uh, because uh, I, have, uh, I have my bookshelf next to me here, uh, and it's uh, seven feet high and eight feet long, and I have one entire shelf, eight feet long, dedicated to apologetics books, uh, Christian apologetics books, and you go through them. And they don't talk about the Shroud of Turin. In other words, uh, people become Christians uh, for historical reasons uh, and, not be, and, and not because of the Shroud of Turin. So therefore, when a Christian approaches the investigation of the Shroud of Turin, he can be entirely unbiased because it doesn't matter to him whether the Shroud of Turin is authentic or not. It does not affect his worldview. Whereas, for example, with an atheist, uh, an, an atheist, uh, if the Shroud of Turin is authentic, that would affect his worldview. So that it's much more difficult for an atheist, for example, to be uh, uh, unbiased and uh, impartial in the investigation. Because to have your worldview challenged is a difficult thing, uh, because it would demand a, a lot of, of review and uh, because you may have put in years or decades on forming your world worldview, even though you may not be aware of it. Um, so that so I try not to talk about miracle. Well, I don't in, in my papers. Uh, I don't mention uh, a miracle or supernatural or the resurrection. I'm merely talking in a scientific fashion uh, about um, <clears throat> an event uh, uh, that is outside of our current understanding of the laws of physics. So in other words, when Einstein in 1915 proposed the uh, theory of relativity, no one went to him and said, uh, uh, Albert, uh, uh, just go back home and practice your violin because uh, this, this is off the wall. This is different than our current uh, established laws of physics. You're outside of the laws of physics. It's a bunch of bunk. They didn't do that. Why? He was presenting something that was outside the laws of physics that were currently understood. And that's what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about miracles or the supernatural. Now, uh, is this outside of science and can science never investigate a miracle? Well, science can investigate the results of unique events. It's called forensic science. So whether you, uh, you have a unique event in a, a murder, for example, someone commits a murder, you have a forensic team, a team of forensic specialists uh, that come in, uh, and they will uh, investigate uh, the blood splatter. They, uh, they'll uh, investigate um, oh, they, uh, trajectories of bullets. They'll, they'll investigate pollen or, or threads or, you know, on and on uh, in, in order to do their forensic determination uh, to give information as to who might have committed the murder. And you have... You have that same type of thing in many different areas. Uh, for example, when you do computer calculations on how the solar system came to be, uh, th that whole uh, history cannot be repeated. Uh, 
yet, uh, and the same thing for the formation of the universe in the Big Bang. Uh, the computer calculations of those uh, are, are good and appropriate, but you cannot repeat them. They are unique events that cannot be repeated, yet science can be done on the results of those events. Okay, all right, perfect. Not, yeah. Let, let's, yeah, let's let yeah. Hugh come back, because Hugh is actually, uh, he is a Christian as well, so, yeah, well, uh, Hugh, yeah. You, you can come back on what Bob said there. Okay, well, uh, let's, uh, I, I, I'll take your point, and I think it's well argued, especially the forensic science thing. Um, I would say that if an atheist became convinced that the shroud was authentic, I don't think it would necessarily destroy his point of view. He would merely um, have to accept that Jesus existed, and he would look for a naturalistic um, formation for the image on the shroud, just as, for example, all those people who think that the shroud is authentic but don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, people like Barry Schwartz, for example, who's a Jew and therefore has no um, interest in the resurrection, or indeed all the thousands of Ahmadiyya Muslims who also think that the shroud is authentic but not produced by um, uh, some physics outside our current understanding. But so, but I'll leave that for a moment and go into your own um, your own physics because I'd, I'd like you to be able to explain stuff which I haven't entirely been uh, understood. Uh, and that is, following Hedges' idea that it's extraordinarily precise that just the right amount of neutrons were delivered to produce um, just the right date that we might expect from the origin of the shroud. Now, if I'm correct, um, you, you, you postulate a particular number or proportion of neutrons coming from the, the, the model body that you have in your, in your model. Is that right? Yes, that's right. You list the total number of neutrons and you have a particular proportion. Um, I can't remember what the proportion is. Was it, is it about 8% or something like that? Uh, what, what I, the, the MCNP uh, code nor normalizes all the results to one source neutron. Uh, what I had to renormalize all that in an Excel spreadsheet uh, in order to calculate the amount of um, increase in the carbon-14 content uh, at the 1988 uh, sample location. Uh, the carbon-14 at that location has to be increased by 16% in order to shift uh, it from the time of Jesus to the uh, uncorrected raw value of, of 1260. Uh, yeah. Um, and the number of neutrons that would have to be emitted from the body to produce that was 2 times 10 to the 18th. That is 2 followed by 18 zeros. Now, I also calculated the number of neutrons that would be in the human body because every atom is composed of electrons, neutrons, and protons. So given the uh, weight fractions of the different elements in the human body, you can calculate the number of electrons neutrons and protons in the human body. And so for a body of about 170 pounds, which they, they think that the man in the shroud was 170 to 175 pounds, uh, there would be about 2 times 10 to 28th neutrons. So that the number that would have to be uh, emitted uh, would, only, would be about 1 neutron per 10 to the 10th that are in the body. Uh, uh, and so that's an extremely small fraction, about one neutron in every 10 billion that are in the body. And I'm, I'm not even saying that they necessarily came from the body. They may, may have been from another source entirely. 
from an energy source within the body, which then uh, coalesced into stable forms, such as neutrons or protons. Yeah, but so, so had there been 1.5 times 10 to the 8 neutrons, it wouldn't have come up to be a date of about 1350. And had there been 2.5 times 10 to the 18th neutrons, it wouldn't have come up to, uh, it would have been far more than 1350. So you've got well, a very precise number, I mean, I, I know it's to the nearest million, 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 million but, um, but quite precise figure. And, and had it been a little bit more, a little bit less, it wouldn't have come to that date. And uh, Bob, just before you, you come back and answer that, I, I think um, what Hugh's point as well is, he's, he's saying, like, it just has to be very precise, and it just happens to come up to the same date that we get from historical evidence, like the mem the memorandum of, of Bishop Dar says they just happen to coincide. So if you wanted to address that aspect in your in your answer as well. Uh, yes, well, I just did a quick calculation here. Uh, the range of the carbon-14 dating was 1260 to 1390. So that's a 130-year uh, period. Uh, now, the, the dates that I, I'm producing uh, on my distribution uh, run from uh, probably... Uh, I'm, I'm guessing here from maybe a thousand up to eight thousand five hundred AD is what I'm producing on the shroud. In other words, this neutron distribution would would cause every location on the shroud to date differently. Uh, on the underneath the center of the body mass on the, on the dorsal image, if you could get a sample there, and you're not going to, but if you could get a sample there. My computer code predicts that you would date that to eight thousand five hundred AD, well into the future. Uh, if you use the same equations that are normally used for calculating the date from the amount of carbon-14. In other words, this future date would result from uh, an amount of carbon-14, a new amount of carbon-14 being produced on the shroud in excess of what you'd expect there. Uh, now, so if we take the 130-year uh, delta uh, T on, on the range between 1260 and 1390, and we divide by about 8,000 years, that's, that's the range uh, of the years that we see across the shroud, uh, that, that gives a probability of about 1.6%. So it's not extremely unlikely, uh, it's about 1.6% chance that you would sample from a location where you would get a date within the carbon-14 range. But not, but not that particular location? Uh, you, you could... That's right. I mean, they could have sampled anywhere uh, on that. Yeah, that's right. In order to get a particular that particular date from that particular location, then you have to go for two times ten to the eighteenth neutrons, and not say two times ten to the nineteenth neutron. Well, if it was you know two point five times ten to the eighteenth, then a sample location uh, just uh, two inches further uh, from you know, that well, close yeah. to, to the edge would then date within the carbon-14 dating range. Yeah, well, it would, but they didn't take it from there. They took it from one particular place for oh, which sure. only one particular value fits. That's, that's uh, yeah. what it's they, 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 were, they were lucky in that sense. It was fortuitous, but yeah. I would say yeah. it was simply fortuitous but, with a probability of about 1.6%. Of all the possible amounts of neutrons which could have been radiated, up to, assuming they came from the body, up to 2 times 10 to the 28th, is it not staggeringly precise 
that only 2 times 10 to the 18th would produce exactly those dates at exactly that place. That, that, that was Hedges' problem. Um, to an extent, it's also mine. It's one of them. Well, um, from a scientific perspective, uh, it might seem very strange. But if I may, for the moment, take off my science hat and put on my Christian believer's hat, yeah. this, the physics of this was evidently built into the universe when it was created in order to create uh, just the image that we see on the shroud. Okay, let me take my Christian believer's hat off and put on my science hat again. Okay, that would be my response. It, you know, uh, <laughs> that would be my response. Okay, no, that, that, that's fair enough. But it, it's, um, you, you can understand, I mean, I hope you could understand Robert Hedges thinking that it, it, it was quite an extraordinarily precise um, amount. And his, his idea was that it would be beyond the possibility of coincidence. And indeed, your, your idea is also that it's beyond the possibility of coincidence if you had to put on your Christian hat to explain that. Yes, it's outside of science. Yeah, okay. That's right. Well, that was, that was one thing. Well, so I won't, I won't pursue that because you're interested. it's interesting to say that, that the neutrons may not have come from the body. But they certainly came from within your model of the body. Well, they, I mean, they, they, they could come down through the roof or anything like that. Yeah, they, they, <clears throat> what, what I said was that in my model, I assumed that the neutrons were emitted from within the body. Uh, and, <clears throat> and that assumption then uh, led to consistency in every respect to the carbon dating on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, and so my, my conclusion here is the carbon dating results do not disprove the authenticity of the shroud. In fact, they do the exact opposite when you get into the details of it. In fact, what it requires uh, is that, the, that, the, uh, that there was a burst of radiation from a dead body. And uh, as we look through all of our historical documents, the, the only option that arises to the level of consideration is that that dead crucified body that emitted a, a pulse of radiation strong enough to create the image and to uh, shift and to release enough neutrons uh, to shift the carbon-14 date from uh, the, the true date to an apparent date. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm getting yeah. a little... No, I, I, I take your point. I, I understand it. It just—it just seems to me, just um, even from a Christian point of view, slightly duplicitous. Can I? Can I go? Can I go? Go ahead, Bob. Can I go into the? If you want to talk about duplicity, can I go into the problems with the uh, carbon dating that that, that was done? in 1988 and then published uh, in 1989. There are significant problems to that document uh, which the layman would not recognize, um, uh, unfortunately due to the technical nature of the document. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we, we can yeah we can get into that um, and you can discuss. Just just so you know, when, when you guys finish discussing that topic, I do have a question uh, for Hugh, based on one of his four things um, yeah. that wasn't described. But, but yeah, so, so go into the duplicity uh, aspect. I'll, I'll let Bob carry on with, with his thing. Although I wasn't referring to the duplicity of people, I was referring to the duplicity of God, that mm -hmm. he should 
emit exactly the right number of radiations to fool me. I find that very irritating of him. Gotcha. Okay, so so sorry. Go, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, I, I don't understand. What What is it you're saying? To form you? The, uh, it's why should uh, if the if the shroud is due to a, 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 something outside our current understanding of the laws of physics in connection with the resurrection, it seems strange that the resurrection should produce exactly the right amount of data that would allow people to understand that the shroud was produced exactly when the historical record says it was produced. That just seems not not the nature of of, of Christ really. Well, I think the historical record goes way, way back before the 1356 showing in Luray, France. I carry in my pocket an authentic Byzantine coin with the face of Jesus, and it's dated to 1025 to 1028. Now, the range of the carbon dating supposedly was 1260 to 1390. So the difference between the 1260 date uh, and, and my coin of 1025 is 235 years. Now, the one sigma on the carbon dating is 31. So that's 7.5 sigma below the carbon 14 dating. And the carbon 14 range was already two sigma. So that my coin is now 9.5 sigma below the carbon 14 dating. And that's not going to happen by chance. My coin dis not only disproves the carbon 14 dating, it also raises the very serious question, how can the, why, how and why can the carbon-14 dating be so wrong? And that's a significant question that my calculations answer. Yeah, but it does rather assume that your coin um, has a, a, a face on it which must have been derived from the shroud, which I don't think it was. Okay, so... Okay. Um, yeah. Perfect. So I, I see. I, I take your, um, your guys' yes. point there. But um, Bob, you 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 mentioned you wanted to speak about uh, the the carbon fourteen scientists and any problems yes. that you have with their particular report. So so yeah, let's yes. have you give that and see how Hugh comes back with that. Yeah. Um, yes. Now, see, the problem here is that I would like to do this after about an hour uh, of lecture, and normally when I stand up to lecture, I talk for about two hours and uh, 20 minutes until I collapse. But I'll, I'll do the best job that I can here just going through this document. This is Radiocarbon Dating of the Shroud of Turin by Damon, Donahue, Gore, Hathaway, etc., etc., 21 different authors, which is very unusual in, in sense in itself to list that many. But that was in Nature, February 16th, uh, 1989. So now the conclusion, uh, and I numbered each paragraph here, and uh, so I'm going to be giving by paragraph and by sentence in the paragraph. Paragraph 1, sentence 3, it says, The results provide conclusive evidence that the linen on the Shroud of Turin is medieval. In paragraph 28, sentence 2, it says, the result, uh, These results therefore provide conclusive evidence that the linen of the Shroud of Turin is medieval. Same statement, basically. But they're making a very strong statement that this is conclusive evidence. Now, let's first of all go into the untruths that are uh, in this. Uh, and what I'm referring to is, is their um, reference. Uh, several times they refer to uh, four different measurements being done uh, in Arizona, whereas in reality it was eight. Uh, and this was only made clear uh, in, in recent years. Uh, for example, in paragraph 50, 
51 sentence one, the Arizona group split each sample into four samples. Oh no, it was eight. Uh, paragraph 21 uh, sentence three, each date represents a unique combination of pretreatment and measurement run and applies to a separate subsample. No, uh, Tucson averaged pairs of values in order to condense the eight actual measurements down into four values that, that they uh, then uh, submitted. Uh, paragraph 24, sentence 3, an analysis of variance on the 12 individual measurements. No, there were 16 measurements when you uh, understand that Tucson made eight. Uh, and then uh, on another issue here, uh, paragraph 29, sentence 1, none of the measurements differs from its appropriate mean value by more than two standard deviations. Well, now that's an interesting statement because the way that they achieved that was by, uh, let me say, uh, this is because pairs of values from Tucson were averaged. That is, the eight original measurements were average, pairs of values were averaged in order to repeat, to uh, present, uh, report only four values. And that averaging process eliminated the highest and the lowest values. In, order, in other words, bringing the uh, actual results closer into agreement with themselves. So this is because uh, pairs of values from Tucson were averaged, thus eliminating the high and low values, and the uncertainty for Tucson's mean was calculated from the scatter of values rather than from the measurement uncertainties, as they stated that they intended to do. So in other words, they stated one thing, and uh, one method of analysis, and they did it for the three different standards that they also measured. But they did not do that, that methodology that they said that they were going to do for the Shroud of Turin because they couldn't and because the data was bad. Um, now, let's go into the contradictions and the bad assumptions. Uh, in paragraph 22, sentence 3, it says, The underlying principle of the statistical analysis has been to assume that, and I'm just quoting from their document, uh, to assume that unless there is strong evidence uh, otherwise, the quoted errors fully reflect all sources of error uh, and that weighted means are therefore appropriate. Now, for the layman, are they going to understand this? I don't know, but I, I'm putting this out anyway. Now, my response. Uh, this, was, this process was followed for the three controls, but could not be followed for the shroud because the range of the measured values was inconsistent with the measurement uncertainties. <coughs> So the question is, why? Why were the measurement values inconsistent with the measurement uncertainties? And that is what requires an explanation. And that's why I did my nuclear analysis computer calculations. Okay. All right, cool. I'll turn it to Hugh, because I know that um, Hugh and Bob have kind of discussed this in the comments previously. But yeah, now we get to hear it live in the flesh. So, so yeah, Hugh, Hugh, what do you make of this? these issues? Yeah, well, um, I... Uh, I, I, I really don't know. Um, I've been trying to find out. Just recently, as uh, Bob will certainly know, Tristan Casabianca has been trying to get as many of the original uh, laboratory papers from uh, that radiocarbon dating and uh, has succeeded in uh, downloading, I think, something like 750 pieces of, of photocopying or, or getting... Um, uh, you know, scanning 750 do uh, bits of document. Hmm. And indeed, they do show that the Arizona took eight measurements 
and those measurements were paired to produce four measurements. And I've been wondering why that should be. And I've asked um, uh, Tristan Casabianca if, if he can tell from the documents that he's discovered whether they actually had eight individual samples, as Bob is suggesting, or whether they had four samples, as mentioned in the Damon paper, and they tested each sample twice, and then added, they added the two averages together to produce the pairs. Otherwise, I'm unable to speculate as to why they bothered to produce four um, uh, measurements for the Nature paper instead of eight. Why not eight? Um, what, what, was, what did they have to, to, to gain by, by combining them into four? And under what, what, why did they combine them into four? Did they just uh, take pairs of measurements at random? So I don't, I don't think that they did have uh, eight subsamples. I think the Damon paper was correct, and there were four subsamples, and that the eight measurements come from um, running each of those subsamples twice. Now, you might say, well, you know, that's just a guess on your part, and why shouldn't you be wrong, and uh, uh, why shouldn't Damon be wrong, and, and Bob be right? Well, there was, there's another parallel, which is quite extraordinary, and perhaps... Um, well, I hope, supports my hypothesis, and that is that in the Damon um, Nature paper, Oxford uh, have dates for three samples. It says that Oxford divided their piece into three subsamples, and the dates for those three subsamples uh, are in the Nature paper. But the data discovered by uh, Tristan from the British Museum recently says that Oxford actually had five measurements because what they did was they measured two of their samples twice. Um, and so that they had two uh, measurements from two samples and one measurement from the other samples, naturally they combined them so that they got three dates for three samples. And I think Arizona got four dates for four samples. Now, uh, Zurich uh, seemed to have kept theirs very secretively. They had five samples and they gave five dates for it, but we don't really know how many actual raw dates there were. I, I think people don't really understand exactly how uh, the carbon dating procedure works. Um, but, uh, you get a piece of cloth and you burn it so that it turns into carbon dioxide and then you reduce it. You take the oxygen away from the carbon dioxide so it turns into pure carbon into in tiny little pits about a millimeter across on a wheel. The wheel has 10 little pits in it and the single sample, um, as I understand it, uh, disappears in little bits of carbon on eight of those pits, sometimes uh, seven, six or seven, but often eight, and the other two little pits um, have got control samples in. So you've actually got eight little bits of a single piece of cloth on one wheel. And then that wheel rotates slowly around inside the machine so that each of those eight little pits produces eight different results, which is averaged, and that is called one run. And you can go around that as many times as you like. You get two runs, three runs, four runs, five runs. So in fact, each laboratory carrying out the same procedure, or roughly the same procedure, actually ended up with hundreds of measurements. 
not four or eight or five, but literally hundreds, which all had to be combined and were combined so that in the end, for the paper that was finally published, each subsample had its own date. Does that, uh, uh, is that making any sense at all to anybody? Yeah, and, uh, oh, go ahead, Bob. I was just going to say, for, I, for the... Yes, I, I understand the process. Uh, I think what happened here was that Tucson, in doing uh, this, you know, multiple run on, on each sample, as uh, Hugh has suggested, uh, ended up with eight samples that were measured. They were then turned in, and the statistical analysis turned out to be so poor that they were then requested. Uh, they, they basically said, what are we to do? And the suggestion came back to them was to simply average pairs of values that were taken on each day. There were four different days, two runs on uh, two samples analyzed on each day so that they, they averaged the, uh, the two different values on each day in order to reduce the uh, eight different values down to four values. I, I believe that's the case. Uh, the information that uh, Casabianca uh, has received from finally after decades we finally have the information that we've always needed and always wanted why so long you know why what are they trying to hide it really makes you think they're trying to hide something well let, let me um, can, can I go into uh, the last uh, point on contradictions and bad assumptions in order to to try and clarify this because the major problem was not that they reduced eight uh, values down to four. The major problem was in their assumption. Uh, and that's in uh, paragraph 23, sentence two. It says, the results of this test given in table two show that it is unlikely that the errors quoted by the laboratories for sample one, now sample one is the shrub, uh, fully reflect <coughs> the overall scatter. Now my comment, the random measurement errors given in table two are unlikely to be consistent with the range of the data. That's what their statement means to the, in kind of more in layman's term, indicating the probable presence of a systematic bias. Now systematic bias, for example, if you went out to measure the distance between two points in, in your backyard uh, and you picked up a ruler you thought it was a standard 12 inches long, but it was 5% five five shorter than that. And you go out and you measure the distance, you're going to come out with a number of feet that's 5% too high. And no matter how many times you make that measurement, it's always going to be 5% high because of this systematic bias in the measurement technique that you're using. Now, let me, let me go on here. They, quoting again from them, the errors might still reflect the uncertainties in the three dates relative to one another, but in the absence of direct evidence of this, it was decided to give the three dates for sample one, that's the shroud, equal weight in determining the final mean. <coughs> so it just in that statement, what they've, what they've did, done, it's well hidden, the layman wouldn't pick up on this, is that they are not going to be... Uh, utilizing the measurement uncertainty data. They're going to assume it away. And that is simply not allowed in statistical analysis. <clears throat> when I was at General Atomics, 
I, I was in charge of a small statistics and measurement group for about five years. And we were measuring, you know, thousands of uh, containers of <coughs> pistol material. <coughs> and uh, if I had ever said, that, well, we're just going to ignore the measurement uncertainties, uh, <laughs> I imagine they would have fired me. Uh, that's just not legitimate. That's not good science. That's terrible science. That's terrible statistical analysis, yet that's what they're doing. They're simply ignoring the measurement uncertainties. Why? Because it, it gave information that the measurement uh, results, the da measurement data, was inconsistent with the measurement uncertainties. And why was that the case? Because the measurements themselves, in comparison, comparing the measurements to the statistical analysis, uh, what you must conclude is because of this inconsistency that a systematic bias is required to explain it to a high probability. But <clears throat> now, when, when I do when I do my analysis, and that's in paper 12 uh, of my uh, of shroudresearch.net, uh, uh, even when I assume just the four measurements uh, produced in, in uh, listed in Damon uh, on my table five using their data and I do this the standard chi-squared statistical analysis which is the same technique that they were using in Damon same technique only they stopped at midpoint and never uh, gave the answer to it the answer that I come out with, and this is just a standard mathematical technique, I come out with a significance level of 1.4%. Now, what, and that's in the lower left-hand corner of my table five on paper uh, 12 on shroudresearch.net. And what that means is that there's a 1.4% chance that the measurement data, that is the dates, is consistent with the measurement uncertainties. Thus, you conclude that there is something in the range of about a 98% probability that there was a systematic bias also affecting these measurements. And that's simply from, that's simply from the data that's present. Now, what does it mean to have a systematic bias? What it, what it means uh, is that the values that you're measuring can be wrong by an unknown amount. Now, in their paper, they did not search for the possibility, they did not discuss the possibility of a systematic bias, uh, and they did, and thus did no effort to try and quantify that systematic bias. Uh, if there is a systematic bias, you have to quantify it in order to correct the measurements. But they didn't do that. They simply ignored it. And by ignoring the possibility of a systematic bias, they thus ignored the possibility that all the measurements could be essentially wrong. So that the 1260 value that they gave, 1260 plus or minus 31, the, the raw or uncorrected value, should be given no credibility at all. And thus, when they use that value to develop a range of 1260 to 1390, that range of uh, 1260 to 1390 has no basis for it. Yeah, can I, can I come back on that? Yeah, Hugh, I'm going to give you the, the last word on this, and then I have a question, because Bob initiated, so you, you'll get the last okay. word. Okay, um, if the um, 
four, if the eight uh, Arizona measurements were uh, generally came from eight different samples, and they were then combined um, to produce four measurements, and those samples were combined at random, then there's no justification at all for the um, Riani and Atkinson paper trying to deal with 12 measurements, because the measurement, the Arizona measurement, has to be either discarded completely or treated as a single, as if it came from a single um, piece of cloth, because none of the four measurements refer, although they all have referred to little bits of the cloth, none of them refer to any particular place um, on that cloth. So instead of 12 measurements, we've now got nine to juggle around with. But I'd like to, 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 to attack this sort of systematic bias thing. I, I, I think that obviously the, the, the measurements didn't, um, didn't correspond to the errors. And I think to make it easier, if I, if I, said, let, let, I sent two people out to, uh, to count some, some, some trees in a wood, and one came back and said there were 10, and another one came back and said there were 11, then I'd have to say that one of them was wrong. And if they both insisted, no, 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 I counted it right, I was 10, and the other one says, no, 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 I, I, you're quite wrong, I counted 11, then your only hope, you can either say, well, no, this, this means that, uh, that uh, one of you is lying or something like that, but one of, them, one of them must be wrong. So if you said, is it possible that you could have been, you know, can we extend an error? Could you say it was 10 plus or minus one or two? And the other one said, okay, it was 11 plus or minus one or two. Then suddenly, statistically, the two numbers fit beautifully together. And this is what the Nature paper did. They had no reason to suppose that the, the dates returned by the, um, or any of the dates returned, were part of a chronological gradient. Um, they, at the time, as I say, they didn't know whereabouts on the shroud the different pieces of cloth had come from. So all they had was the dates as returned. And if some of them didn't match up, they, they closely, I mean, I'd say closely, they match up to within 100 years or so. But if they didn't actually match up because of the errors, then all they could do was to say, well, maybe the errors were a little bit bigger than people thought. I think people, are, um, I, I think people reading the Nature paper don't understand that, uh, curiously, especially according to the, the way in which statistics works out, the bigger the error the more consistently three or four measurements can be seen to come from the same um, from, from the same sample. If there's, a, if there's a tiny error, then, as I say, you get two people arguing, it's 10, no, there's 11, no, there's 10, no, there's 11. And all you can say is, this doesn't match up, we've got no idea. But as soon as they admit to a certain amount of error, then the two things can be matched. And that's what the Nature paper did. Now, I think if they had a clue that the Arizona sample was at one end and the Oxford sample was at the other end and the Zurich sample was in the middle, they might have realized that there was a chronological gradient and, um, and accounted for the fact that the three samples didn't match up in a slightly different way. Gotcha. I think it's my, my response. Okay, perfect. Um, so at, at this point, um, I'm going to get your guys' feedback, but there's... First of all, my question for you, Hugh, is um, I noticed, so I think we've pretty well covered three of the four reasons, but uh, the second reason that uh, uh, Hedges took issue with Tom Phillips, you're, you're talking about the uniformity of the results are somehow inconsistent with what Bob is saying. Now, 
you did mention that later on statisticians have, have shown that's not the case, but I'm, I'm just sort of wondering, is there anything with this reason that could be used? Do we have any data or anything that can rule out Bob's hypothesis or, or that sort of thing based on the uniformity issue, or is that just a, that's an outdated issue? I think that's an outdated issue, and I'm sure Bob would agree with me. No, I mean, I, I think um, Riani and Atkinson did a fantastic job of using the 12 dates that they were given um, to produce a pretty good uh, estimate of a chronological gradient, and uh, which, as I say, Hedges and, and the, the radiocarbon oxid team, or any of the uh, 1988 team, didn't know was there. Perfect. Okay, um, perfect. So... I think we've covered the carbon-14. Are, are you both agreed? Are you happy with what we've covered? Or, or do either of you want to continue on a little bit more on the carbon-14? Is there anything we've missed? I'll leave it to you, Bob. Age before beauty, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yes, let me, let me come back here with uh, some of your, uh, your consideration about people counting uh, trees uh, in the forest. You know, your, your cute little example uh, does not uh, undo my, my uh, you know, three months of calculations on, on the data that, that was actually obtained uh, in, in Damon. For example, the, you know, the, the two people going into the forest to count trees, that's not a systematic bias. That's a random error. Yeah. People were randomly making uh, different judgments uh, as to how many trees were there. That's a random error. That's not a systematic well, I don't. I don't think there's that the results in the nature in the nature paper necessarily need be interpreted as systematic. Yeah, they do. Uh, in all probability, because in the again, what I say in Table Five of my paper, the probability that the measured values are consistent with the measurement uncertainties is only 1.4 percent. Therefore, uh, you cannot say that there was no systematic uh, bias to it you must consider the probability that there was a systematic bias. And as soon as you say that, you have to rule the data out as being credible in any sense. Now, for example, my, my paper, uh, number, uh, let's see, uh, number 21 on, on, my, on my website, so shroudresearch.net, uh, the paper 21 is titled Understanding the Statistical Analysis of Carbon Dating of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, and, uh, so what I've done here is, is that I'm taking all of the statistical analysis that I'm aware of that has been done on the Shroff Turin data since uh, 1989 and Damon's publication uh, in Nature. Uh, and so uh, I list those uh, references 2 uh, through 14, uh, and that includes the, the brand new Casabianca. Uh, 2 through 14, so uh, 12, 12 different references, and they all say that the samples are heterogeneous. Now, again, the layman won't understand what that means. Uh, homogeneous is the opposite of heterogeneous. Homogeneous means that, they're, that, that the samples are coming from the same population, and the, the, the three different samples right next from each other that were sent to the three different laboratories should be homogeneous samples. In other words, they should have the same amount of carbon-14 uh, in them. The ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 and 13 should be the same on all three of those samples. They should be homogeneous samples. But they weren't. All 
all 12 of these analyses that I list in paper 21 say that the samples are heterogeneous. That is that there's a basic difference in the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 and 13 that is not explained by the random measurement error. That there's a systematic error going on. There's something strange going on that is shown uh, in, in my paper 12 titled The Carbon Dating Problem for the Shroud of Turin Part 2 Statistical Analysis Figure 3. It, it plots the, uh, the correct uh, data uh, from the Damon paper uh, with the, the corrected uh, statistical analysis, and it shows the 1260 average value that, that they um, concluded in their paper only goes through one of the three points. That in, indeed a slope, a sloped curve, goes through all three points with, with a slope of about 36 years per centimeter. Now, what that means is if you had sampled one centimeter, uh, further toward the bottom of the cloth, you'd get uh, a 36-year older cloth. Uh, if you'd set, uh, sampled uh, one inch closer to the center of the body mass, you'd get about a 100-year shift. Uh, and so this is why the computer code uh, predicts that there would be, uh, every point will date differently, all the way up to 8,500 A.D., uh, under the center of the body mass on the dorsal side. Now, so therefore, uh, I put in a proposal to the committee that makes recommendations to the Vatican for testing on the shroud that they should uh, take some of the fully carbonized material that they removed from the shroud from underneath the patches in 2002. Uh, they removed fully carbonized material from underneath those patches uh, and put it into, I believe it was 42 sample jars, and those sample jars have been in the vault in Turin ever since. Uh, and so I put in a recommendation to test that because my prediction is that that material uh, on the patch that would be next to the back wall, as, as the body lays on the back bench, would date to about uh, 4,500, uh, and that carbonized material on the opposite patch away from the wall would date to about 3,500. Uh, and so uh, even with the uncertainties that might inherently be in my calculation, it would certainly date well into the future. If it doesn't, that falsifies my hypothesis. If it does, uh, it shows that there was a neutron event uh, in, uh, in the tomb that, that shifted the carbon-14 date, which then, of course, uh, disqualifies the carbon dating that was done in 1988. Perfect. Okay, so so I'll turn it to I'll turn it to Hugh. This will be the last word because we got to move on okay. to the second topic. But yeah, oh, Hugh. Oh, yes, well, I, um, well, uh, what was I going to say? Yes, yeah. I think you you certainly put your money where your mouth is, Bob, because uh, I've no doubt that sooner or later they will do this uh, radiocarbon test, and sure enough, all the little child pieces will turn out to be as medieval as bits at the end. But fair enough. Can I, can I just ask one sneaky little science question? Sure, yeah. Is that right? Um, so all these neutrons go, go uh, piling into the uh, carbon in the uh, linen, is that correct? Uh, what the neutrons, uh, neutrons are released from the body. Neutrons are yeah. highly penetrating. They go through the body, across the gap, go through the cloth, across the, the air, then uh, in, into the limestone, bounce around, 
about 150 times before they're absorbed somewhere. About one neutron in a million will then be absorbed in nitrogen-14 uh, in the cloth. The nitrogen-14 kicks out a proton and is thus changed to carbon-14, thus producing new carbon-14 on the shroud. That was the thing I was going to ask you about. Now, what happens to the protons that were kicked out from the uh, uh, nitrogen-14, especially those protons which are in close proximity to the body, which now dates to 8,500 AD? Where do they go? All those all Any, those. They, they go anywhere they want to. <laughs> all right. They're not likely to produce uh, the image at all? I, I'm sorry, what? Did you, well, one of your uh, earlier predictions, well, no, one of your earlier uh, ideas was that the image was produced by protons. Uh, I think that the image was produced most likely by charged particles such as protons, electrons, etc. There's many different charged particles in the standard model. Uh, it, but yeah, part of the image could have been formed by electromagnetic radiation such as infrared, visible light, and ultraviolet as well. But I think it's mostly charged particles. And are you speculating that these protons came from the body or from the uh, nitrogen-14 that had been ha that was kicking them out as a result of the neutron radiation? Oh, the radiation that, that formed the image had to come from the body. It had to come from inside the body in order to carry the information content regarding uh, the bones near the surface of the body and deposit that information on the cloth so and w to explain why we can uh, evidently see bones uh, on the uh, image that's on the Shroud of Turin, such as the teeth and the bones in the hand, and a few other places have been reported. Uh, so that, uh, yes, that, that radiation that formed the image had to be emitted from within the cloth, and because there was no lens between the body and the cloth to focus the information, the radiation, in my view, uh, most likely had to be uh, vertically collimated, both up and down, uh, like a billion lasers going off simultaneously, and each one of those lasers was vertically oriented. Yeah, so the protons emerging from inside the body contributed to the image, but the protons kicked out by the nitrogen uh, 14 turning into the carbon 14, what effect did they have? Well, you have to realize that uh, what I said was that about one uh, neutron in a million would be absorbed in nitrogen 14 in the shroud. So that uh, the, the rough estimates that, we, that we've made here uh, is that the number of protons that would have to be emitted to form the image would be within the same order of magnitude, within a factor of 10, uh, uh, w uh, the same as the number of neutrons, which is an interesting thing. So that the number of protons that would be formed by the nitrogen-14 would be inconsequential compared to the number of protons that would have to be em emitted to form the image. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll follow that. I just think that if there were protons emitted by the nitrogen-14, how interesting whether they would be collimated as well or whether they would shoot off in all directions. Um, what, yeah, yeah. What, what, what we're seeing here, there was a recent paper in Applied Optics, a 2D reproduction of the face on the Turin Shroud by infrared femtosecond pulse laser processing. And, and, and this 
is able to, they used a femtosecond pulse laser to create the image of a face uh, from the Shroud of Turin uh, yeah. on a piece of linen. And, and it really does produce it well. But to do that, they had to have the information which defined the, the appearance of that face, and they had to have a femtosecond pulse laser. Now, a femtosecond is a, a, means that the pulse from the laser, the time span of that pulse would be a millionth of a billionth of a second. So it's extremely brief. So that according to this paper, that, that's, what, that's what was necessary in their experiments to form, uh, to produce a good-looking face. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. I'll, I'll, I'm happy to, to, to move that on, except to just say that we've now got something like five different processes outside our current understanding of the laws of physics, um, relating all, the, you know, in order to produce all these different effects, which is quite interesting. Uh, what, 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 are you, what five effects? Are you not, they're not consistent. Hmm? Well, we, you've got your little pulses of, of uh, laser beams shooting up and down, which might have produced the image. We've got little pulses of protons from inside the body, which might have produced the image. We've got pulses of neutrons, which don't, which aren't collimated and shoot out in all directions, which produce the radiocarbon date. We've got more pulses of protons uh, rejected by the nitrogen-14, which don't appear to do anything. And then, of course, we've also got what happened to all the protons and neutrons which didn't shoot out from the body. It's all rather odd. Uh, yeah, we don't have five different basic processes. We have one that occurred in a femtosecond. Now, that's, which, that's the ultraviolet um, pulses. Oh, I know. So no, in well, that femtosecond... Yes, and yeah, yeah, what we're saying is that in this... Let's, let's call it a femtosecond. Yeah. In this femtosecond event, which is outside of our understanding of the laws of physics, our current understanding of the laws of physics, after yeah. that femtosecond is over, everything is understood according to our uh, currently understood laws of physics. It was only within that one femtosecond that is outside of our laws of physics. So, in, so that if in that femtosecond we have a pulse of radiation, which could have included all electromagnetic radiation such as infrared visible light and ultraviolet but doesn't have to uh, you know we're just trying to be flexible yeah uh, we're, uh, you know there, there's so much that we don't know that we do have to be flexible here uh, but the, the main thing to form the image I think was charged particles exactly what their nature was we, we don't know uh, but evidently neutrons were also included in that radiation burst evidently because of the data that was produced and reported uh, in nature requires there to be a, a, the, uh, new, the carbon dates to be shifted in the forward direction. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. And just for the audience, I had to look it up myself. So a femtosecond is one quadrillionth of a second. Uh, so a, very, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. A very... Ten to the minus fifteenth second. It's a millionth of a billionth. There you go. Okay, so perfect. Um, so yeah, let, let's move into our second topic then, because this is where Hugh is going to be initiating. And we got into a bit of image forming mechanism stuff there, but um, yeah, Hugh, Hugh, how do you explain the the images? What what sort of mechanism do you think can explain the the body and blood stain images that we have with the shroud? Uh, yeah, and Hugh will give his ten minute or less opening speech. 
then Bob will give his 10 minute or less opening speech and then we'll have our the informal discussion as we've been doing. Okay, um, well, so from, uh, I'm gonna talk of the Shroud as uh, from an entirely medieval point of view. Um, so I'm gonna ignore all the evidence which there is to suggest that it isn't medieval. Um, although, I mean, you know, that's not because there isn't any or because I don't accept there is any, it's just that it, it's distracting from this particular part of the program as it were yeah so I, I mean I see the shroud as medieval and it starts it begins as far as we know um, in this little Leary town of Leary round about the time of the Battle of Poitiers in which its first owner died so I think it uh, quite likely that it wasn't exhibited until uh, the first owner had died which is why the uh, Bishop of uh, Troy or Troyes, uh, 30 or so years later, uh, said that it wasn't the owner of the shroud who had exhibited it, but the dean um, and the, the clerics of Leary. And I think that that may be significant uh, towards the end. Uh, secondly, uh, round about that time, well, from about the 10th century right up to about the 15th or even 16th century in some places, uh, there was uh, an Easter ceremony, which a lot of people have heard of, um, which was called the Quimquiritis ceremony. And literally hundreds of churches all over Europe carried out this little ceremony on Easter morning. They've all been collected uh, in a huge well, a whole uh, collection of books by a German called Walter Liphart uh, in about 1970, who has listed uh, well over 200 different versions of this and so presumably each of the 200 different versions had more than uh, more than just the one adherent so different churches in that area would all have the same thing so I'm assuming that all over Europe there were thousands of churches all of whom enacted a little ritual and the little ritual went like this on uh, Good Friday yesterday as it were a crucifix or a, an image of Christ was prepared and taken to a, a, a tomb or a box on the north transept of the church, which was called the Easter Sepulchre. Quite often, inside that image, there was a there was a wooden image with a slot in it, and they would actually put the sacred host into the slot. And the slot was sometimes at the back of the head, and sometimes it was in the side where the spear wound um, injury might be supposed to be. Anyway, they would put it there, and they would wrap it in a shroud in a cloth. And then on Easter Sunday morning, three priests um, posing as women, whether they were actually dressed as women or whether they were just sort of enacting the job, would go across to the Easter sepulchre and where they would meet an angel, where they would meet another priest dressed in white. And the priest dressed in white would say, Quim quiritis, um, Christicole, what are you looking for, you, you followers of Christ? And they would say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And the angel would say, he's not here. He is risen. And they would all rejoice. And the angel would say, take this shroud back to show the people. And they would pick up the cloth, which had wrapped the statue of Jesus in, take it to the high altar, hold it out so that everyone could see that Jesus had risen and all that was left was the cloth. And in order to be 
um, in a big cathedral in order to be visible, the best sort of configuration for that cloth to be would be about four meters long and about one meter deep. It's it's the perfect size. It's it's a, it's a the shroud of Turin is a rubbish shape for dead bodies. Um, it's it's much too long and thin, and that's not the way in which any shrouds anywhere ever have ever been made. Shrouds are usually just like sheets. You put the body in the middle and you wrap up the sides. What you never do is put the body at one end and fold it down over the top. However, if you did do that, you would never put the head in the middle. If you put the head in the middle, then when you folded the cloth over, the head would disappear, and the last thing that you would see would be the knees and then the feet. Whereas anybody who's ever seen any pictures or illustrations or anything of Christ or anybody else uh, wrapped even a mortuary uh, or a crime film or something like that, you will know that what you can do is you peel back the cloth and you can see the head. The head is the last thing to be covered. But if the shroud were uh, in the configuration that it is, uh, and it was used as a shroud, the head would be the first thing to be covered, followed by, as I say, the rest of the body ending in the feet. All right. Now, to that end, we, we must think about this business about how a shroud, uh, how an artist, a commissioned artist, um, now, some people would say that, why didn't this artist produce hundreds of these things? As if he was uh, Damien Hirst, who produces, a, I don't know, a pickled animal, and then when it's popular, he produces more and more pickled animals until everyone's fed up with pickled animals. But that's not the way artists used to work in the Middle Ages. Artists belonged to institutions. They might belong to the royal court, in which case they did what they were told by the king or the or, or, or the royal family, or they belonged to a cathedral, in which case they did what they were told by the cathedral. So when they did what they were told, they just they, the cathedral said, look, you know, we've got this cloth, we want you to produce an image on it so there's something to see, which is rather sensible because as it stood, people would go out there and hold out this cloth and there was nothing on it. So if he did that, he would think, right, so what we're producing is an imprint of, of Jesus on the cloth. Now, how can we do that? Well, in the sort of early um, medievalist investigations of the shroud, um, Joe Nickel and people like that, they said, well, why didn't you just paint it? And presumably he would have had a body next to him, possibly a man standing up and just copying roughly where they thought a shroud might um, touch a body and produce an imprint. And that, that seemed to work quite well. But in my opinion, and in the opinion of one, two other researchers, it probably was an imprint. So in other words, you've got your statue of Christ, of which there are a few, um, you know, samples about, though none of them exactly the same. Although I'm still tracking it down, sooner or later I think I might find the actual model upon which the shroud was made in some museum somewhere. They got this model and they smeared it with something and then uh, spread the cloth over the top, possibly dabbed it down with their hands, and then when they removed it, where the, um, where the pressure was highest, you'd get the strongest um, image, the strongest intensity, and where the pressure was lowest, you'd get uh, the weakest intensity, and where it didn't touch the, the uh, model at all, 
you'd get uh, you get no image whatever. Now there are there are uh, that, that's basically that's what I'm going on at the moment, and there's a there's a development which I came across literally two days ago, which I'm very excited by, because there are lots of objections to this. I think that um, idea would cope with the fact that the shroud is an imprint and looks like an imprint. It could even cope with the idea that there is what looks like um, a cloth to distance against intensity ratio, which produced that um, 3D image on the, on the VP8 image analyzer and things like that. But I think it's not a cloth to distance to intensity. I think it's a pressure to uh, intensity ratio. It produces exactly the same effect, but it's not to do with anything traveling at a distance. It's to do with direct contact. A lot of people have assumed that if a thing was on direct contact, then everywhere where the where the, where the pigment touched the shroud would be one color and everywhere it didn't would be another color. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think pressure um, would could play a, a, an important part in moving uh, an, an amount of information, if you like, from one surface to the other. Um, now, we're then left with the interesting problem of the fact that everyone will say, yes, well, if it was dry, then the pigment would simply have fallen off over the years and you'd get absolutely nothing. If it was wet, uh, then the paint or whatever the thing was would soak through and you'd get the same on the, on the back side as you did on the front side. And these are definite problems which people like me are trying to solve. So our first thought is that it, the, um, the image doesn't appear to be made looking at it, even, even just without having to look at individual fibers, just looking at the uh, uh, close-up photographs by Vern Miller, funnily enough, which has just been published, and the ones by Mark Evans, which have been available for some time, certainly shows that if there's any kind of pigment on it, it's not very clear. What seems to be clear is you've got a discoloration of the thread, of the fibers in the thread. Well, if I read the um, the art, the book of art by Cennino Cennini, who was a, a person who wrote a sort of uh, a jobbing handbook for artists um, in, a, in about the 15th century. One of his methods of uh, producing uh, paint that, uh, that will last for some time is to mix it with various things, including vinegar. And vinegar has a slight uh, a corrosive effect, as anybody who's done um, you know, secret writing and things like that. We used to we used to write our names or messages in vinegar on bits of paper, and then they would all disappear. But when you held them in front of the radiator, the, the thing would slowly turn brown, and that would be quite exciting. So I think, and in fact, um, even Walter McCrone came round to this idea in the end that the image is not the pigment itself, which either all washed off or wasn't really a pigment in the first place, um, but the medium. In, uh, was the was the thing that carried the information from the shroud from the from the from the statue to the cloth. Now there's lots of reasons why it wouldn't necessarily be a proper statue, as it were, because as everyone knows, if you wrap a cloth around a statue and it's got paint all over it, then when you when you unfold it, the ears instead of being whatever they are, 25 centimeters apart, because you've unwrapped it turn out to be about 50 centimeters apart and the whole thing looks stupid uh, which is why I think that the uh, image that the statue that was used 
was a vast relief. In other words, there really was only a three or four centimeter difference between the highest part of the carving and the lowest part of the carving, so that the shroud spread over it um, wouldn't wouldn't produce would be more, stay more or less flat, and it wouldn't produce all these grotesque distortions that it would do if the body was a complete body. Um, now, this is this is this is the discovery that I came up with the other day, which I think is absolutely fantastic. In one of the ancient missals, the use of Hereford is what it's called. What they used to do on Good Friday was to wash their statue with wine. Now, how about that? If you wash a statue with wine and then you let it dry, what happens to the wine? Well, if you get wine left in a wine glass, it turns into a kind of sticky, sticky goo. And, of course, wine, it also turned in slightly vinegary. And I reckon that if you washed a statue with wine and then laid a cloth on it, you may well get an image which was very like what we find on the shroud. And that's what I'm about to experiment with uh, sometime in the next month or two. So that seems to me quite a good idea. Um, I think that that sort of sums up mostly my view of, of why the shroud is the shape and size that it is and roughly how the image appeared on the cloth. However, there is one problem that we um, authenticists have to, have to sort of face the whole time, and to a certain extent it's just a problem that we have to face, and to a certain extent we feel it's slightly unfair, and that is that people will forever say, well if you haven't done it, it's not possible. To which, of course, my response is that, well, nobody's made a copy of this shroud, not the people who think that it was done by neutrons and not the people who think it was done by ultraviolet radiation and not the people who think it was done by vapors or uh, amino reactions or anything like that. So the authenticists are in much the same position as the non-authenticists from that point of view, which I... Which I um, so I, I don't think the fact that we haven't done it yet is, uh, is, is particularly important. And um, then the the uh, the other problem that we 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 have to deal with is that we don't really know what it is that we're trying to duplicate. Uh, as you know, the two people who investigated the image, or two groups of people, I should say, who investigated the image best, were first of all uh, Walter McCrone, who got all the sticky tape samples from his good friend Ray Rogers after the 1978. Stirp investigation, uh, and then he passed them. Uh, well, he was forced to pass them on to um, Alan Adler and John Heller, who looked at all the individual fibres under a microscope. And of course, John uh, Walter McCrone announced first of all that the whole thing was completely made of iron oxide. Well, iron oxide comes in different varieties, and most of it's red, and the shroud isn't red. So that was slightly odd, although he did eventually accept that the colour of the image was actually the discoloration of the fibres and not of the pigment itself. And then, of course, you get Alan Adler and um, John Heller, who, in order to have a look at these fibres under a microscope, found that they couldn't see through the sticky tape easily enough, so they had to peel the fibres off. And the glue of the sticky tape, which Heller calls goop in his book, was so incredibly sticky that they had to wash these fibres off with, with toluene extremely thoroughly in order to remove the glue. And at the same time, of course, it would have removed all the pigment that there possibly was. So when in the um, 
chemical investigation of the Shroud of Turin, which is Heather and Adler's big uh, description of the uh, of the fibres, they say we didn't find any particles of iron oxide. We can only say, well, I'm hardly surprised. They 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 washed them all off. So it's not perfectly clear to me what it is exactly that we're trying to replicate. But uh, I think that before very long, I can certainly produce, well, in the next month, I'm going to produce a cloth which has an image uh, which can be uh, turned into a height against distance image through a VPA style of program that doesn't go through to the back of the cloth and which is mostly made of deteriorated fibers. And the good thing about this is, like Bob putting his money where his mouth is, I'm doing the same. I'm sure I can make an image out of a wine-soaked piece of wood. And that's all I'm going to say on the subject for the time being. Perfect. Interesting. And I'll, I'll be interested to see your results and, and your methods. <laughs> and, you know, I'll submit it to, to peer review, I guess, within the, the Shroud community. Yeah, let's see, let's see what happens. I, I think I'm doing a postgraduate course in uh, Shroud Studies, and I have to submit it to Bruno Barberis, who is, uh, who, is, who is a fanatical shroud authenticist. So uh, I think that'll be as tough a peer review as you can get. <laughs> gotcha. Perfect. All right. So, so Bob, it's your turn. Um, take 10 minutes or less to give sort of your counter case to, to Hugh's notion of how the, you know, about the shroud being a medieval artistic image and, and his sort of ideas there. Well, okay. So... <clears throat> I did come out with a, a very recent paper uh, on uh, shroudresearch.net, and I think you're going to be having that up as well. Uh, and that uh, image formation on the Shroud of Turin, that's my paper number 22. I uh, just came out uh, with it recently, uh, and that's, uh, I think, it's a proposal uh, that is consistent with all of the uh, information that we have, uh, as far as we know, uh, on what is required uh, by the evidence on the shroud itself. Now, just for example, this, this is based uh, on uh, charged particles being emitted uh, vertically collimated uh, from within the body. And just for example, uh, what, once you hypothesize that, then it naturally explains what appears to be a negative image on the cloth, and it also naturally explains the uh, 3D or topographical uh, information content that is on the shroud, uh, which is there because the people can can and have taken that and re reproduced a, a statue from that information content. So we, we do have that three-dimensional information content uh, encoded into the pattern of the discoloration uh, on the fibers of the shroud. Now that 3D characteristic in my concept is naturally formed as the radiation crosses the gap between the body and the cloth. There are three different um, possibilities for that intensity of that radiation to diminish. Uh, one would be scattering off of the air particles. One would be uh, absorption by the air, the air atoms. And the other possibility would be decay of that radiation. So that uh, evidently that radiation from the body, as it's traveling vertically toward the cloth, is, is diminishing uh, by those one or more 
of those three different possibilities uh, and so that uh, if the distance from the body to the cloth is over about three or four centimeters, uh, it simply does not register anymore. There, there's an insignificant amount of radiation reaching the fibers uh, to cause uh, the image. That, that fully explains the, the negative effect, uh, negative image effect, the 3D or topographical information content. It, it also explains uh, the, the modeled appearance of the discoloration on the threads. Uh, now, you have to realize that in 1978, when the Shroff Turing Research Project sent uh, about 26 American scientists from the US, United States to tour in Italy, uh, they went to perform hands-on non-destructive testing of the shroud for five days, 24 hours a day. Their, their main uh, goal was to determine how the image was formed. Uh, and so at, at the end of this five days, 24 hours a day, they worked in three shifts. They, they slept in the room where the, the shroud was located. They were very intense on this. Uh, their experiments determined that the image contains no pigment, no carrier, no brush strokes, no clumping of anything between the fibers or threads, no capillarity, that's soaking up of a liquid, no cracking of the image along the fold lines, and no stiffening of the cloth. Uh, so many or all of these would be present if the image were due to paint, dye, or stain, yet none of them are present. Uh, uh, their experiments also prove the image is not due to a liquid, due to lack of capillarity, it's not due to a scorch, it's not due to a photographic process or any other concept that they could think of. Uh, and so based on all of that information, the one thing they didn't consider was radiation. Uh, and so uh, after, after the uh, STIRP investigation, the concept of radiation was put forward and gradually uh, with, with the general consideration uh, gained adherence that, that believed that when you consider everything, this is the way that it must have been done in order to be consistent with the evidence that we see uh, on the shroud. Now, uh, the, you know, we'll, we'll just have to, I, I doubt that what Hugh is proposing is going to give much different results than any of the other attempts at uh, creating an image, either by a naturalistic process or by uh, a human uh, guided process. You have to realize that it, it's not just the issue of the macroscopic image. That is, on the face, just as you look at it, does it look right? No image produced by naturalistic processes or by um, uh, human effort uh, has resulted in a face image uh, that is like the image on the shroud. You can always tell the shroud is the authentic one. All the, the others are the reproductions from it. So that you have to understand that uh, of the one to 200 fibers that are in a thread, the discoloration of the fibers only discolors the, the fibers on the top one or two uh, layers of fibers on that thread. Very strange. Uh, it, it does not penetrate through the that discoloration uh, of the fibers does not penetrate into the thread. It's only a surface effect. Uh, secondly, uh, as you look uh, closer at the individual fiber, an individual fiber is about 20 microns in diameter. A micron is a millionth of a meter, so it's very small. Um, but the, the discoloration, it's kind of a, 
a sepia or a, a yellowish color. Uh, and, but uh, the part that uh, is colored is only about two microns thick, two to four microns thick possibly, out of the 20 micron diameter. In other words, the inside diameter of that fiber is not discolored at all. And the discoloration goes 360 degrees around uh, the fiber. How was that done to produce such uh, an extreme thinness of the discoloration? So what I'm suggesting in my image formation on the Shroud of Turin paper, uh, paper uh, 22 is that it was caused by a static discharge from the, the top portions of the fibers that were facing the body. And that would be then consistent uh, with the evidence that we see on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, the, the next thing that you have to realize, and that would have to be reproduced in, in any type of naturalistic explanation or, or human-done explanation, you, you would have to produce the same cause of the discoloration in that 0.2 micron thickness on the fiber. And you have to realize the reason for that coloration is, is because the carbon atoms that were already in the cellulose molecules. In other words, this is no new atoms that were added to it. This is simply dealing with the atoms that were already there. Uh, for example, a carbon atom has six protons in the nucleus uh, and, and thus six electrons circling the nucleus in order to produce a, a neutral atom. But the, the inner orbit contains two atoms. The next orbit out, I'm sorry, contains two electrons. The, next, the second orbit contains four electrons. <coughs> and uh, those four electrons in the typical cellulose molecule are bonded to the four surrounding atoms with one electron bonding to each of the four atoms. <coughs> so the discoloration is due to a change from a single electron bond to double electron bonds. And how in the world do you do that to create an image of a naked crucified man? So <coughs> any attempt to produce such an image not only has to be accurate to the appearance as you simply look at it, but it has to be accurate microscopically. The discoloration has to be only on the top one or two layers of fibers in the thread. It has to be only uh, on the upper 0.2 microns out of, the, out of the 20 micron diameter of, of the thread. And it has to be due to single electron bonds being changed into double electron bonds. Uh, if those things aren't present, you have not produced and found how the shroud image was produced. <coughs> Perfect. Okay. Um, so yeah, at this point, um, we'll open it up to the informal dialogue part. and. Um, Hugh, this is your topic, so I'll, I'll let you sort of initiate uh, the conversation. What what are some of the areas you want to discuss with Bob there? Okay, yes, yes, well, much of what he says is, is entirely sensible. Um, some of it's a little peculiar, um, like the, uh, you don't have to know a great deal of chemistry, um, certainly the, <coughs> the, uh, the oxidation of the, of the cellulose, um, you don't need to sort of attack each bond and carefully make it into a double bond uh, as you know, a scorch will do that very easily. Now I know the Shroud of Turin is not a scorch but a, a process um, 
which has the effect of um, degrading the fibers will naturally, if it's not a very strong process, will have the effect of degrading the outside of the fibers rather than going all the way through. Uh, and I may say that it's not at all, well, no, it's not, it's not, it's not at all. It's not totally evident that there is no capillarity. Uh, for example, if you look at some of the new photographs, or even some of the Mark Evans photographs, but some of the um, new photographs, uh, the, the micrographs produced by Vern Miller, um, they do look as if something has gone along the surface of some of the fibers, especially into the cracks. And I think Julio uh, Fanti has noticed this as well, saying that some of the uh, color is more intense in the dips where the um, threads go underneath each other than it is on the surface. Of course, that might be partially due to the fact that much of the surface, especially in some places, has been eroded away. However, I wanted to go back to the idea that um, statues have been made of the shroud and uh, because it's so anatomically accurate. Well, yes, statues have indeed been made of the shroud, and I could think of three four straight away, and all four of them are completely different, uh, although all of them are based on scientific investigations. For example, uh, first one I think was probably John Jackson, who produced an exact configuration, according to him, of a shroud wrapped around a body, and it was lying flat on a surface. Its knees were flat, and um, so it, it wasn't bent up or down in any way, and it contrasts quite fantastically with Giulio Fanti's uh, version of the exact configuration of the body as worked out from the information on the shroud, which shows uh, a big, um, the, the, the knees quite sharply drawn in and the upper body uh, tilted upwards and the head forwards, um, which, is, which is completely different from the flat configuration that John Jackson came up with. And then um, earlier on, there was a crucifix, which was again uh, produced mostly according to the exact configuration of the blood flows. And the crucifix was produced by a gentleman called Giulio Ricci, which you probably remember, because it shows Christ slumped to one side, one arm is stretched outwards, um, extended to its fullest extent, and the other one is at a right angle. Can you remember that crucifix? There's a couple of them around. And the head slumped sideways, um, which was a perfectly um, accurate uh, image of Christ, as was uh, demonstrated by the markings on the shroud. And then, of course, more recently, we've had the statues of, oh, the wonderful Spanish gentleman whose name I forget. Miguel Lopez, would it be? Uh, which shows the arms more or less symmetrical and uh, the, the, the legs a bit straighter and it's hanging, usually hanging from the cross. The point is that all these four perfect statues, oh and of course we've got the 3D, the, um, the computer stimulations, simulations of uh, Petrus, Soons and Ray Downing. Now, so that gives you six possible um, statues all of them, each proponent will say that they're the most accurate they could possibly be, and all of them are completely different, which leads you to wonder how, in fact, accurate they all are. If we look at the, um, the actual 3D appearance, as it appears on the VT, VP8, 
uh, image analyzer or uh, the program that I use, which is image J, which does the same thing, we find that rather than an exact copy of a statue of Jesus, what it looks like is a bas relief. The surface is completely flat and the uh, image that the, the, the uh, three-dimensional image of the face is uh, looks like little flat mountains sticking up out of a uh, mountain sticking up out of a flat baseline. So uh, if radiation vertically collimated radiation from the from the body produced the image, then the shroud had to be more or less horizontal. It could not have been flopped over the side. Um, which puts you in the interesting um, the, the interesting possibility. Well, was the shroud horizontal when the image was formed? Well, uh, Isabel Pixek, the, the Hungarian stained glass window painter who had a great interest in the shroud, she thought that it was, that the shroud was exactly horizontal around the top and the bottom um, of, the, of the body, which was hovering horizontally between it. And in that way, as an artist, she thought that the um, precise image of the body could be uh, represented on the shroud. And she realized that this wasn't normal, of course. She said it was a process outside our current understanding of the laws of physics. Um, and I dare say I don't fully understand the physics of John Jackson's collapse theory, but that's another process outside the current understanding of the laws of physics, which could also have produced exactly this image. My point is that all the people who think that the shroud is authentic have come up with completely different ways of producing the image, and they've also come up with completely different statues derived from it. And nevertheless, all of them is the only possible one. And that, I find, is a bit of a contradiction in terms. And I think that the bas-relief smudging hypothesis is going to is going to come out better. It's going to produce a better thing. Um, if I could go through, so uh, not a scorch. Well, I'm not too sure about that. I have done huge amounts of research on scorching linen, and I have to say that every single one that I've done has produced a beautifully bright ultraviolet fluorescent ring around it, which the shroud certainly doesn't have. So I'm prepared to accept that the shroud was not uh, scorched by somebody using a hot brass or something like that. However, firing pulses of um, laser ultraviolet light at the shroud in large quantities, I mean, at the moment, we have to remember that because it requires so much energy, um, Paolo Di Lazzaro has produced a little face, which I think is about one centimeter square. But if you did that over a whole body, I should be very surprised if you didn't get a little bit of fluorescence coming out of that. And I don't know whether he has subjected his, uh, his little centimeter square to ultraviolet testing to find out whether that um, glows violently or not. As I say, the point about there's no paint or dye or stain on the shroud. Well, there certainly isn't lots of paint um, that you can actually see by looking at it. But dye is, a, 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 is quite a different uh, substance from paint in that it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's much more particulate. It's, it's much more finely particulate um, and more likely to uh, become part of the... Uh, of the cloth than not. So I, I'm, uh, I think the stain, it, it might be something to do with the dye. But an acid stain, I think, uh, provided it was mild enough, 
would have the effect of conjugating the double bonds of the cellulose um, and do all the things which uh, Bob would like it to do, would, 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 would like done, wouldn't like this uh, wine to do it, but he would like it done in order to produce what he thinks is characteristic, uh, and indeed is one of the characteristics of the shroud. Okay. I think I've waffled a bit there. Oh, no. Um, yeah, uh, Bob, uh, go ahead. Do you, do you, what do you make of some of the things Hugh is um, coming back on? Well, uh, he seems very confident that he can uh, make an image, and uh, I would say uh, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, we'll wait and see. Yes. Okay. Um, Bob would like to come back on the, on the whether the cloth had to be horizontal or not. <clears throat> Yeah, yes, the, the question there is, is whether the cloth, when, when this uh, femtosecond uh, pulse of uh, radiation occurred from within the body, whether the, the shroud was at that point wrapped uh, across the face. <clears throat> it would seem like if it was uh, draped across the face at that point, uh, you would produce, according to this concept that I have uh, in, in my paper, uh, let's see, uh, 22, testing for Im image formation on the Shroud of Jarvis. Uh, when the Shroud is laid flat, then you would have a face which is much wider than a normal face. So that, that would seem to indicate that you have to have, uh, in some mechanism, to uh, have a flat Shroud, uh, essentially, across the face. Uh, now, there, there's... One mechanism that Giulio Fonte uh, thinks could be the case uh, was that uh, in, in a burial of Jesus, of course, this was, you know, the, the burial in, in that day was a two-phase two process, and this was phase one, but even phase one was incomplete, and that's why the, the ladies were coming back uh, the following Sunday in order to continue the process. So that as the sun was going down very rapidly, according to the biblical text, uh, that they just really didn't have time to do much. Uh, and so that they laid the body uh, down uh, on the back uh, bench uh, uh, and then put all of these spices, which may have been, for, for example, flowers in, in some kind of a arrangement, a bag, a pillow or something, pillowcase or something, you don't know. But according to Giulio Fonte's concept, that there was something on either side of his body that would uh, basically elevate the cloth um, <clears throat> so, that, so that when this pulse of radiation occurred, that the, the cloth would be basically flat. Now, now, of course, that's one concept. Uh, another concept that occurred to me, <clears throat> just in studying very high energy uh, radiation pulses, such as a lightning strike, what you find is that the clothing on a person can be blown off them by the uh, any water vapor on or near the surface of, of the body being vaporized. So that on very high energy events like this, you can have strange phenomenon going on. Uh, and it, it, may, it seems like in some way that, that the cloth actually was horizontal uh, over the face because of the, the face being of a reasonable width. Now, exactly how that occurred, I'm not sure. That, that remains to be seen. 
I've only been on this project for five and a half years, and that's one problem I haven't solved yet. Oh, I have. <laughs> um, the uh, the hair, which, as you notice, uh, on the on the um, shroud, this has been commented a lot. It's not a not a new observation by any means. The hair um, around the face is about the same level as the nose. It's it's as bright as the nose. In other words, the face is enclosed inside a um, a box, uh, uh, which is assumed to be assumed to be hair. It looks a bit like hair on the on the negative. Uh, and yet, some of the statues that I've been looking at, whether of Jesus or of indeed um, French kings and people like that who are buried and they have their statue made of them, often <laughs> hair um, surrounding the face as it would be as if they were standing up, even though the statue is of them lying down. And of course, if, if, if the hair on a statue is, is like that, then when you lay the, the cloth across the top, um, it's held up at the sides. And I'm imagining that, although, you know, this is slightly odd in terms of um, Jesus lying in the tomb, you'd have thought that his hair would flop down like anybody else's long hair. But uh, if it was propped up like that, then I imagine the shroud could take on a, a flattish configuration around the head, but that wouldn't account for the rest of the flattish configuration around the rest of the body. So I think in order for the the uh, collimated radiation hypothesis to work, the shroud has to be horizontal all the way across the top, as well as all the way across the back as well. Um, and also that doesn't take into account, of course, the fact that the cloth at the back of the shroud uh, is considerably, if it's horizontal, is considerably closer to the body than the cloth at the top of the shroud because the body's actually lying on most of it. So there should be a much greater intensity of coloration on the back than there is on the top. But that's not what we find. Uh, yes, a couple comments here. I'm looking at the image of the Shroud of Turin uh, on the four-page foreload on National Geographic, June 1980. And what I see here is that the hair, I would say, is about one-third the intensity uh, of the tip of the nose. Uh, and so that I, I could foresee that the cloth would not be exactly horizontal, but would be draped to some extent uh, over the face. And I, just offhand here, I would say that that could be explained uh, by a steam explosion based upon the, the energy deposited in any moisture on the body or near the surface of the skin of the body, thus forcing the cloth out uh, in, in certain places. Uh, and so I think that that's a possible explanation. Um, okay. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, well, one, one question I could um, ask, so, so for, for you, Bob, um, we mentioned you mentioned okay well you know we just have to sort of wait and see uh, to see what uh, Hughes results are um, but one thing that Hughes sort of mentioned is that well look it, it's it's unique um, so far possibly in terms of you know why aren't there hundreds of other medieval copies and that sort of thing and he sort of addressed why we wouldn't expect there to be other similar shroud images um, what did you make of that sort of argument out of curiosity well, well I'm, I'm not 
sure I understand what he's saying, but yeah, there, there's been like 40 to 45 different copies, you know, ancient copies uh, of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, and uh, they, they were, you know, and you can learn a lot from the copies. You can, you can learn what the technology was for making copies, and it was a painting process. Uh, some of the, the copies are uh, partial size, you know, one-third, one-half, two-third size. Uh, some, some of them are assigned by, by the author. Some of them are dated. Uh, these copies, you know, they didn't have a, a copy machine at that point. So, so they made these copies by hand. Uh, and so they, you, uh, in uh, testing it for uh, hand motion uh, of the pigment, you can tell that there was hand motion. Now, on the shroud, it's totally different, so that by uh, investigating uh, all of those copies that were made, what it points to is that the Shroud of Turin is the authentic original, whereas all these copies are the copies. And it, it, it indicates how copies were made, so that, for example, if the Shroud of Turin were actually a copy of the coin that I had in my pocket, then you would be able to tell it by the hand motions uh, of, of the paint pigment on the shroud, and yet you can't. So the, the, the coin was made from the shroud and not the reverse. Gotcha. Can I, yeah, can I pursue that, that coin thing? Sure. Yes. Um, because this was uh, sort of begun by, I think, uh, the late Alan Wanger, wasn't it, with his, with his points of correspondence. Yeah. Uh, he had this idea that if you got two images and you overlaid them, which of course now you can do with any imaging software at all, but he had this wonderful system of, of, of polarizing the images so that they could be merged one to another, which was which is quite unique in its day, I think. Um, but he, well, I, I, I've not read in his book or seen exactly how these points of correspondence, which appear to be so terribly important, how they were actually worked out. And, and, and all I've seen, I have to say, is sort of contour lines um, as lines of intensity of the shroud and contour lines drawn from statues or coins or stuff like that. And then the contour lines are sort of superimposed on each other. And at any point where they coincide, that is assumed to be a point of congruence. And some people, well, if you look up shroud and points of congruence in Google, you'll find anything from 75 to 250 or something, hundreds of them. And I just don't know how these points of congruence uh, actually mean anything. It seems to me that if I do a random scribble on a piece of paper, and somebody else does a random scribble on a piece of paper, and I overlay the two, I'm going to find lots and lots of points where the scribbles coincide. And I'm absolutely certain that that is what Alan called a point of congruence because it was simply a place where two sets of contours coincided with each other. Um, and I'm afraid that's not good enough. That does not describe to me whether two things are exactly the same. And if we, I mean, the coin's not very big, I, I understand. Would you say it was about three centimeters across, two centimeters across, something like that? You mean the coin that I have in my pocket? Yeah. Uh, it's about an inch. Yeah, yeah. Byzantine, gold Byzantine, Solidus or something? Uh, yeah, yes, it's an authentic Byzantine coin yep. dated to 1025 to 1028. But how you can determine that that is, that the shroud must have been derived from it, 
I think requires a lot of subjectivity. Or that it must, sorry, it must have been derived from the shroud requires a lot of subjectivity. Okay, I don't think it takes any subjectivity. They, 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 uh, it, in the Byzantine Empire, just like we put in God We Trust on our money, they put the uh, an image of the face from the Shroud of Turin on their money because uh, it was so prominent in their culture. And it was but so but they, they, they certainly they put a face on it, and it was the face of God, but it wasn't the face of the Shroud of Turin. Anyone who looks at it will tell you that it is. Hmm? I would yes. say any normal person would, would say that, yes, uh, I, showed, I showed this coin uh, day before yesterday to a, a group of about 10 people, and mm -hmm. they said, well, certainly, that's, that's the face from the Shroud of Turin. Well, mm -hmm. that's very good of them, but yeah. I, I, I think they're wrong. Okay. So, what do you base base it on? What are you basing it on, then, uh, Bob? If if you don't mind me, just sort of clarifying it, because obviously the people that you're showing it to, they're not conducting like a points of congruence analysis or a statistical thing. Is it sort of like on the various features, then compare it like the odd features? Is that what you're saying? Oh, 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 yes. The, you know, the the long hair coming down uh, on either side, parted in the middle, one side. Uh, here on one side, a little, little bit larger than the other, uh, straight on uh, appearance, uh, long nose, uh, hollow eyes, uh, uh, e even uh, some of the markings uh, uh, on the cloth have been reproduced uh, on, on the coin. For example, underneath the beard, uh, there is a, there's a, a little bit of a fold point that shows up, and that's, that's shown on the coin. Uh, and so, yes, they're one and the same. I mean, it doesn't take a nuclear scientist, of which I am one, to, to tell that. Uh, no, I think it takes a numismatist. Um, the interesting fold, for example, that everyone's so excited about uh, on the neck, the double hem on the top of the tunic that um, these uh, sort of images of Christ tend to have on them, which... I think even Paul Vignon in the 1930s decided was a, was a unique identifier of the shroud. Well, that particular wrinkle wasn't there in, uh, in Secondo Pia's photographs. The wrinkle only appeared in between the 1898 and the 1930 uh, ostentations. So it could hardly have been copied onto a coin uh, in Byzantine times. Uh, similar things like that. You say, you know, he's got long hair. Well, just about every apostle in Byzantine uh, coins and, or not so much coins, but images and drawings, they've all got long hair. Lots of them have got long hair. Um, lots of them have got it parted in the middle. Um, not all of them have got wide staring eyes. And in fact, Vignon never uses wide staring eyes as one of his particular identifiers of the um, uh, of the image on the shroud on contemporary Byzantine drawings. I've just spent a week um, actually looking uh, through Vignon's book um, because I'm presenting a paper on it in Ancaster in July, June, August, and um, so it, it, you know a lot of these markings just don't exist. The, the wrinkle on the on the uh, on the neck is is a particularly interesting one because it really wasn't there at all. So any Byzantine drawing of a hem uh, with a double hem at the neck is not based on the shroud. 
Okay, I'll, I'll have to check that. I'll have to check that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was I was just gonna say yeah. I'll give Bob the yeah. Let let us know and I'll put oh. it in the comments or something. Um, but I have I do have a further to couple topics for Hugh now. Um, so in terms of your your image mechanism that you're proposing, um, you know you, we've sort of referenced some of the image features such as how you know the pressure to the pressure to intensity ratio is how you you think it all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what and we we've also mentioned that this su image superficiality because there are various layers of superficiality. This could be a potential. Um, issue for your thing, but uh, what about uh, other image features like uh, the image uniformity or the oh, vertical? Yeah. Oh, sorry, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I'll go for an image image uniformity. Sure. Is 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 really a good one. Now, um, I can't I can't go long for if you go for a um, an outside the current understanding of the laws of physics uh, physics explanation, then it's perfectly possible for shall we say hair and fingernails to emit radiation in exactly the same quantity, intensity, duration or whatever as you know, the muscles or bones or something like that. Um, but it, it really, I don't think that's, that stretches credibility to me. Um, something interesting was also that Bob suggested, I mean he was, didn't mention it in great detail so I didn't pick it up straight away, but something to do with the uh, radiation having to come from inside the body because you could see some some bones. Was that right? Yes. Uh, you can see finger bones. You can see teeth. Yes. You certainly can't see any ribs. And I would have thought one of the most uh, perfectly identifiable um, characteristics of an X-ray of a body would be ribs. Ribs are very clear. They're very close to the surface, and there aren't any at all. No one that I've Ever some, perhaps you've seen one, but I've never seen anybody claim that you could see uh, images of the ribs. So maybe the neutrons came from the outside of the body on the torso. They only came from inside on the hands and the jaw or something like that. Uh, that strikes me as slightly odd. However, if a carving is made, then of course the hair and the nose and the fingernails and the teeth and the lips and all the rest of them are all made of the same material. So of course, if you cover it with something and you make a print of it, the hair is going to produce the same kind of intensity as the nose. That's my answer to Dale's point, I think, yeah? Yeah, sure. And Bob, did you have any thoughts on how Hugh's um, proposed mechanism would fare in terms of some of the other features like body image uniformity or, or that sort of thing? Uh, not really. I, I just... I think there's been so many attempts at, at following a, a naturalistic or human uh, cause of it, uh, and they, they've all uh, been very unsuccessful, uh, and so I would expect that this to be very unsuccessful as well. Oh, uh, fair enough. What about the x-rays of the ribs, though? Have you got any comment on that? Uh, that's an interesting observation. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. The, the upper chest, of course, has has, has more uh, muscle area on it, so I wouldn't expect it from the upper chest because the, the ribs there would be a, a bit deeper. That, uh, so that what we see here uh, is just the very surface bones. In other, in other words, uh, the radiation that would be, uh, 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 according to our concept, would be forming the image from radiation from within the body uh, due to charged particles. These charged particles are being absorbed or scattered 
in the body so that the deeper elements in the body would not be registered on the cloth, only the very surface items. Now, I've also noticed some some of the vertebrae on the backbone uh, shows up uh, as well. Uh, there's there's even some reports of some of the uh, separations in the the uh, bones uh, in the uh, head that's cranium uh, show up on the image under careful analysis. Yeah, and as far as I see here with Segunda Pia's photograph, uh, the the fold that I was referring to was right at the, the chin, and it's there in the chin. Yes. Oh. So sorry, I'm, I'm referring to the chin lower down below the neck, which is represented on Byzantine coins as the hem of the tunic that they wear, which is below the neck. Uh, yes, now, uh, you have to realize that the, the image, uh, would, according to our, our concept here, the image, uh, the radiation would have been deposited at the time of Jesus, say 30 to 33 AD, uh, and that probably over uh, a relatively short period of months to years that that image would have started to show up. It probably didn't show up immediately uh, based on uh, various factors. But uh, that maybe due to exposure to the ultraviolet light in the, it, when it's displayed, then the image would gradually uh, develop, you might say. But the background cloth would not. So that as the background cloth gradually darkens over centuries and millennia, the contrast between the image and the background is decreasing. And so that there is a factor about uh, on some of the most ancient of coins and ancient of photographs, they show details that we can no longer see because the contrast is decreasing. Okay, perfect. Uh, yes, it's oh, rather speculative that though, isn't it? No, it's exactly what would be expected. Yeah, but have you got, I mean, how do you know that the details were there in the first place? Uh, just just based upon the copies from the shroud, on the coins or the photographs. Yeah, most of the copies of the shroud have got loincloths. Yeah, not, not photographs, I'm sorry. Uh, paintings of them. Yes. yes. Oh, yes, they did. Matter of fact, when, um, when the shroud went on exhibit, uh, the, the paintings that were made of the event would be made before the event uh, in, in order to uh, sell them to people who were there for their remembrance and devotion. So that uh, in, in the culture of the time, the artist then, not having seen the shroud, uh, but he just hearing stories about it probably because it hadn't been shown for perhaps decades, uh, we put a loincloth on it, just just out of uh, courtesy. Oh yeah, yeah those those the, the ones that, that were sold as postcards and engravings and things like that, uh, commemorating um, commemorating ostentations. Now I was thinking more of the uh, copies of the shroud, which are called, let me think, uh, extractum ex origine, I think, or extractum ab origine, uh, which were. Uh, intended more for veneration, um, and were uh, like the the, the shroud of uh, Lier, for example, uh, in Belgium, and the dozens of shrouds of Noalejo and people things like that in uh, Spain. 
um, which have usually got that they were copies made from the original and laid on top of the original to give them some kind of um, sort of second grade of relic status or the third 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 grade relic uh, status and that sort of thing. Uh, but they often have loincloths on as well. And you can understand why, just out of courtesy to the people, yeah, and just out of respect for the human body. You know, showing a, a naked, crucified man in, in front of, you know, ladies and gentlemen that have come to a worship service, that, that might be offensive. So you can understand why they would be tempted to do something like that. Yeah, but then if a copy is acknowledged not to be an exact copy, then you can hardly derive details of the shroud that it's meant to be an exact copy of from it. I mean, either it is meant to be an exact copy or it's not. If it's not an exact copy, then you can't say that it has details which ought no. to be on the shroud. Oh, no, you, you have many, many different copies that, that show up these various details, even though there are some differences. You can't ignore the, the similarities just because there are some differences. No, no, it's obviously, yeah, I mean, the bits which are like the shroud are obviously meant to be, I mean, you can, you can tell that it's derived from the shroud, it's not just, uh, the, the, um, uh, the extracted ones, the, the ones which are um, declared to be exact copies of the shroud, uh, you can see that they're meant to be copies of the shroud. Yeah, well, they, they would, might be declared to be exact copies of the shroud within considerations of the capability of the artist who painted it and, and the sensitivities of the people who would observe it. So we, we shouldn't be, be applying uh, unrealistic expectations to it. No, 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 I follow that. that that's fair enough. Perfect. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I think that covers it. Is there anything on the, the topic of Hugh's image forming mechanism that you think hasn't been covered or you guys would like to discuss before we close? Uh, no, we'll just wait to see how his, his uh, formation technique works. Sounds good. Yeah, let's see which one comes first. The uh, the the radiocarbon dating of the uh, of the carbon fiber shreds from inside, or or, or my copy. Yes. I'll bring it to join Costa, and you can see. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. I, um. So yeah, I just want to close out. I I think it was a great discussion. I I really liked the back and forth and giving you guys the freedom to let's really hammer this out and and go after it kind of thing. Uh, Hopefully on, on your end, you guys uh, enjoyed your time on the show. I, I did all right by you. Yes, that's fine. Ah, no, I, I, I hope we will. Yeah? Yep. Yes, yeah, so, thank you for having us on, and thank you here for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. Well, I look forward to uh, to chatting with Joe next week. Yep, yeah, Hugh, Hugh's going to be coming back uh, next week. Uh, we're doing a Shroud Wars round four. Um, Joe, So that's going to be with Joe Marino. Uh, he reached out and said he was, uh, you know, interested in what's going on with the shroud. Um, he wanted to sort of tussle with Hugh uh, Hugh Ferry on the um, invisible reweave uh, hypothesis, which is different than the take that me and Bob ta uh, take with the neutron absorption hypothesis. So, yeah, yeah, we're we're going to be doing a a couple different topics. So, you know, the dating of the shroud, and that's going to be not just the carbon 14 but but other evidences that we discuss as well um we're going to be going into the image formation again um and going back and forth there and then we're going to have a third topic on the forensic or medical evidences related to the shroud um where joe and hugh are going to be going back and forth on that so 
Um, yeah, hopefully the, the audience enjoyed this and I'll, I'll put up the sources for you guys to check out and I look forward to part four next week. All right, have a good All right, bye-bye, right, everybody.